Hey listeners, thanks for downloading another episode. Uh, this one is with Tony G, my original Bend comedy partner. Uh, this episode was recorded in February of 2015, and it was just after he opened for Ralphie May here at the Tower Theater in Bend. So we talk about that uh, and how he got started in Portland and a whole bunch of fun stuff. So go ahead and listen to it. It's a long episode, but we talk about a lot. So buckle up. gentlemen welcome to comedy northwest podcast uh this is a very special episode i am sitting down uh with my good friend former bend comedy partner tony g hey what's up everybody hey ryan how you doing i'm doing pretty good how are you doing i'm good man so i wanted to sit down with you because you had some things you want to talk about you you've hit this uh certain spot in your career where you feel that you're finding yourself so i wanted to talk to you while you're in the thick of this Mm-hmm. and see what sort of information I can get out of you that would be informative to other people that are going through their comedy career and probably coming up on the same spot. Right. So, I guess you call it a spot or a wall or whatever it is. I think you, a lot of comics get to a point and they've been doing it. F- I've been doing this just over five years now. Not hitting it as hard as a lot of people are like up in Portland and Seattle so or wherever in cities where you uh, work a coffee job, don't have a kid, and pray to God something interesting happens so you have material. Yeah. At least that's been my experience. So, um, yeah, I've hit that point where I'm doing one thing on stage and I want to be doing another. Mm-hmm. So, let's okay, let's go back and start from the beginning here. I have my questions I usually ask. Uh, so, how did you get started in comedy? Um... It's kind of a neat story considering that we're in Bend where it all started. I was in an acting class up at the college, had kind of got this hankering to do stand-up, and through the acting class I met a kid who knew somebody who was doing, his name was Josh Pyland, and he was doing something called Blind Squirrel Comedy at that point, and he and Randall Knight, mm-hmm. who was also doing comedy at that time, um, were kind of doing their own little thing. And I would say, looking back, they lasted just long enough to get myself and a few other people in the same room. From that point, I started working with Jake Woodmancy, who was pretty much the only show in town. And we started working wherever the hell he could book us. And, you know, (laughs) bless his heart, honestly, because considering how we're in a town of 80, well, at that point, 85,000 people, nobody gave a shit about stand-up. That's five years ago, so anywhere in America, most people didn't give a shit about stand-up. And it's just starting to turn. So with that being said, things started to progress. You know, you get a little better, and uh, you start putting shows on here and there. Kind of under the under Jake Woodmancy, you know, he he led us just far enough to where I could get out and start doing my own thing. And then I started doing my own thing, and he was doing his thing. And then um, we met, or I met Alex Rios, who came into town, who's from Terrebonne, who went to San Francisco, came up here. We got in cahoots. Did some shows, realized Portland was the place to be compared to Bend. Went up to Bend, spent seven months up there with him living in a one-bedroom apartment, which those end up being some of the best damn comedy stories in the world as you get older and you reunite with those people. And um, after that, everything went sideways in my life and I was forced to make some major decisions that didn't have 
a lot to do with stand up, but in a way had everything to do with stand up. Mm-hmm. And so I've been I found myself back in Bend for the last two years taking care of those problems. Well, okay, so let's work through this timeline here. When you got started in comedy, around what year was that? Let's see, carry the two maybe about two thousand and eight. Uh, I'm sorry for making you do math. Um, <laughs> well, five, five and a half minus minus 2015. That'd be middle of two, what, 2008, 2009. Yeah. So when you tell me about your first time on stage, what what was it that got you on stage that first time, and how did you feel once you were up there? You know, I'm glad you asked that because this is one of my favorite stories that I never remember to tell. Um, it's one of those situations where Josh Pyland was looking for a room. He had a place for us to get up, and he couldn't. So I literally rallied a bunch of friends, went over to their house, and said I wouldn't smoke pot, which, if you understand Oregon culture, even back then, pot's a huge thing. It's only <laughs> one of the two things to do here besides you know, hang out with a shitty woman and have kids is to be a stoner. So I had all these people at, the, at their house, and we're all excited. Then I get a call that says, hey, it's not going to happen. Well, we're looking for a room, but it's probably not going to happen tonight. So major letdown for me. All the adrenaline starts to leave my body. And so the woman in the, one of the women in the house is like, well, let's get stoned. So I get really, really stoned on something that looks like a vase, like a big fucking vase. That's all I remember. It was very, very eccentric setup. And it got me ripped off my ass. And literally, as soon as I get ripped off my ass, I get a text that says, dude, Found a new venue, we're doing it, and I literally went to the bathroom and had a fucking panic attack while I'm hallucinating, and the towels are kind of talking to me. <laughs> no shit, I was literally kind of losing my stuff, and <laughs> just everything at that moment was just the most intense as it could be. Long story short, ended up on stage at a um, at what's now Mavericks a Country Bar, and Terry Lynn. It was also her first night. Oh, uh, right. doesn't do stand up, but it's funny as hell. And um, we performed together. And you know, the first time that was the first time I put a microphone in my hand or anything like that. So it was goofy. But at the same time, I feel that was the most. That was my voice. I've always said that the first night, my first night on stage, was the closest I've been to my voice in the last five and a half years. <laughs> it's weird because you're just completely vulnerable, and you don't know what you're gonna say. But somehow it comes out funny because you're being completely honest. You're not hi- you're not hiding behind some material that you've written that you're trying to force down an audience's throat. Yeah, that's stuff that you learn later because you're following the rules of comedy that existed back in the '80s. Yeah, and so um, yeah, it was like 15 minutes. It was hilarious, and the funniest part I remember about that set was that my fly was down, <laughs> and right then I I realized now that I had it. I had it all kind of. I had the confidence right then and there. I looked down and I said, yeah, my fly is down, and since it'll give you guys something to look at, I'll leave it down. Yeah. And I did leave it down for the whole show, and in a way, I think a lot of people had respect for that. And um, it was one of the best stamp sets I've ever had looking back. More people were into me that night than ever bef- than, and since, than, you know, up to this point. But um, it was a it was a good time, and I made a rule to myself on the way back in my friend's car. I said, no, I just have to get up again immediately. And that's how the addiction starts. Yeah. So. Well, I don't, and I don't mean to burst the bubble of your story, but I see, I see a very interesting correlation between you being high that night, being on drugs, mm-hmm. and performing for your first time. And ever since then, you're like, that was the best feeling, and you have just been chasing that dragon since. Right. Absolutely. It's just like heroin. 
So do you do you feel that maybe um, you know people say don't have sex on ecstasy because sex will never be the same again. So do you feel that maybe your experience that night was that much more amazing because you were on whatever you were on, mm. and that you are sort of chasing the dragon also? Well, no, because it's not like I was actually saying what I wanted to say. I mean, now in stand-up, what I'm chasing is that voice inside my head, that gratification of the audience accepted these hard, dark things that I want to be validated. Mm -hmm. I wasn't being validated that night. I was still doing goofy shit that I'd written down that day, things like that. They were goofy thoughts. They weren't aggressive. And now that I've been doing this for five years, I realize what I really want to do. Back then, I just wanted people to laugh at me. Do you remember any of the material that you did? The one thing I did was uh, I made some sort of reference to sitting, how handicap stalls were fucking huge, and they made me feel like a childlike Forrest Gump with Velcro sneakers <laughs> as my feet dangled. It was something to that extent, how your feet dangle off those high-ass toilets, making anyone feel like a handicapped infant. Yeah. That was one of the bits I rambled on about. Is there... I, is there anything that you used back then that you still use today? No. No? You don't talk uh -uh. about big <laughs> candy. No, styles. because it, one thing you learn about comedy is is that if you don't... Well, what, this is the one thing that bothers me about stand-up is that you write a piece of material and you develop this relationship with it. And as soon as you kind of get it where you want it, you either get tired of it or you know people have heard it. Something happens to it. It's not as fresh and you have to start faking the emotion. Yeah. And I don't like that. I don't like faking the emotion. I think that comedy is evolving, I think, uh, drastically, and I think people are really tired of hearing the same tired-ass jokes. Well, which do you think is worse, um, faking the emotion or not showing emotion? Well, I don't know. I've never not shown emotion on stage. <laughs> well, there, I mean, there are emotional. people that are fairly monotone, but at the same time... You know, back in the you know, the, the the stereotypical guy with jeans and a sports jacket with the sleeves rolled up, sort of a deal. He is completely faking the emotion. But you know, to audiences, people will still eat that stuff up. So if you had to choose between faking the emotion or showing no emotion, I guess for your style of comedy, I think that yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, it's not. I don't know if that's a valid question for me because I'm an emotional guy in general. Yeah, I'm very emotional, and that's me on stage. I think that's what a lot of what drives my act is. I go out with this set thing in my head, like I'm going to tell these jokes, and then I get on stage, and I completely throw that out the window after yeah. the first line, and it's all up in the air, yeah. and it's all based on emotion. It's all based on how I feel or. The fact that I forgot everything I was going to talk about, you know, it's all it's all emotion up there for me. And that's kind of how I am in life. So what I'm really trying to do is put my daily self on stage mm -hmm. and pursue this. What I haven't seen a lot of in professional comedians, and I tell myself this could also just be a phase of my comedy career, which it may very well be because of the lack of stage time that I get and things like that. I don't have time to develop these bits constantly or to retell these stories as much as I would like, which I think will really help me in the long run, you know, help mm -hmm. you. If you're doing something eight days a week, you're going to repeat yourself. I'm sure you don't have fresh ideas every day that are going to last an hour. Yeah. But where I'm coming from is by the time I get on stage once or twice a week, I do have a bunch of fresh shit that I want to talk about. And the old stuff I don't really care about anymore because I've already said it. Yeah. So what is your writing process? Everything that comes to my head, I put down, 
Um, some of it's usually I write down just about anything. My notebooks are just full of shit. And from that point, those are all things that can spawn into material. Mm -hmm. But I have to take those ideas on stage. So do you, what is it that you're writing down? I mean, is it more like of a journal style writing? Definitely journal. Some of it's like two to three pages of an idea. There was like just two two sentences. And then how do you, how do you, how does that translate to what you do on stage? Well, I mean, at this point, what I've been doing is going on stage and just kind of seeing which of those ideas that are in those journals come to mind when I'm up there. Mm-hmm. So no set list or anything like that? I mean, set lists, it's, there's something about looking, I mean, either not looking or looking at a set list that breaks up that connection. And it's just like, I hate the idea of, okay, this is what we're going to talk about next. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's just something. Something's missing in it for me. I like the idea of being a performer, but I don't like the idea of being as Bill Hicks as a fucking jukebox. Yeah. You know, they expect the same thing out of you every night, and I think that well, they used to, and I think that that's changing with stand-up. I think stand-up is changing once again, to where you don't people aren't expecting a punchline every third sentence or less. Yeah. And the people are just comed- comedians are just going up there and trying to really be vulnerable. A lot of us are. And if you get to a punchline, so be it. If not, you just own it and go on to the next. It's a process. Eventually, you have this heavy story that does yield a punchline. Yeah. And comics have been doing that forever. Yeah. But I just, I'm more of that. I'm more of, certainly more of a dark comic. And here's my big struggle. I live in a place in in the Northwest that I've heard so many comedians say the Northwest is the hardest damn place to do stand up, Mm -hmm. let alone to do dark, vulnerable stand up. Yeah. Now, to prove that point, Anyone listening, and yourself included, name someone that you would say is a dark, edgy comic that came out of the Northwest. <laughs> That's almost impossible. Sam Kinnis and Bill Hicks came out of Texas. You have Carlin out of New York. Yeah. Those are all places where people still get bullied. Yeah. There's still frustration. And that's where dark comes from. Mm-hmm. And that's where I came from. I came from the East Coast, from Philadelphia, and all that. And to be out here is so opposite and I can feel the tension in the room when I get up there with that look in my eye of like I really want to unload and if I got that permission to unload from these people I know I can make it funny but somehow we get lost in they're not ready for this so what do I do now Mm -hmm. and that's really been my struggle with stand up here is I don't want them to have a bad a bad night yeah because I understand comedy and I can really appreciate it. I don't want to fuck up the scene for us because we work really hard yeah. to get what we have. And so right now I'm at this point, like the last set I did on Thursday night, there was a lot of fuck yous in there. Yeah. I was mad. Oh, yeah. And I am mad. Yeah. And half of it is I'm mad at society. Yeah. I'm mad at these, at these fucking people who live here. Mm-hmm. I just am. I'm mad because they're so ignorant. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ralphie May sold out. <laughs> and the, these white, pretentious, ignorant fucks because that's what they are, they earned every word of that, are protesting the fact that he uses the word retard. Yeah. And like I said before, Mike, I told my family that from Philadelphia, and they told me that's fucking retarded. Yeah. And that's exactly how they see it. It's it's a <laughs> completely different level. We're 3,000 miles apart, and what we find to be socially acceptable back home is not socially acceptable out here. Yeah. And that frustrates me. So that makes me very nervous when I go on stage. Yeah. It's like, Tony really has some shit to say. And if you gave him a chance, I guarantee you he'll make it funny because he's comfortable. Mm-hmm. 
but you're not going to give it to me. I'm so scared. I am. I fear getting up there and continuing to do what I'm doing in this, what I did Thursday night. Like, mm-hmm. keep digging, you know, and keep going. And I just, I don't want to fuck up the show. So let's talk about that Ralphie May night. Mm-hmm. You had the opportunity to open for Ralphie May when he was performing here at the Tower Theater. Right. Uh, which is a huge opportunity. I, I have never been more jealous or more happy for you in our entire relationship well, thank together. you. Yeah. Um, I mean, the uh, was it a year, year and a half ago, you opened for Pauly Shore, which right. was awesome. I mean, it's Pauly Shore. But the opportunity was still really awesome. Considering I'm a small-town comic in Bend. Oh, oh God, yeah, exactly. I mean... Unless you're blowing someone at helium <laughs> in Portland or damn yeah. near, yeah. you're not getting those gigs. If you could give me that person's name, I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, but yeah, you got a little something on your mouth there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Ralphie May, uh, the news story came out a couple weeks beforehand about him and this thing in Colorado, mm-hmm. which I think started the attention on Ralphie May. Right. So then he comes to Bend, and people are like, oh, well, this guy was a degenerate a couple weeks ago, so we don't want him here in our town. So they found some sort of reason to be against him. So the whole retarded thing. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a slang. Like it's more of a slang than it is a slur at this point. I feel like right. So finding that one word was a little ridiculous. They were really reaching for that, but they had picket signs and they were standing out front. Right. And I think it was probably probably like maybe a dozen people. Most of them were mentally challenged and were just there because they were told to be. So I actually have backstory on this. Do you? I okay. have more backstory than the newspapers yeah. and all of that because I was in the room at the booking agent who we're not going to name out of respect for the booking mm-hmm. agent because okay. they don't want anybody to know they exist and yeah. good on them. Yeah. Um, because it's so competitive and Americans are soulless in my opinion when it comes to business. Yeah. May fuck you. That's what you earned. Um, so what really went down was as far as there's, this is really a good story, in my opinion. It really, it taught me a lot. But let's start with the main fact that I was in the office before Ralphie May went down. This is about a week before it happened, after the Grand Junction thing. But in Bend, there's a fella who realized that Ralphie May was coming to town, and he really had a lot of pat. He really likes the Tower Theater. Well, this man's story is as such. He is a fifty-something who has a band where his handicapped son is in said band. Yeah, and he sees that. The Tower Theater, who he thinks is just, you know, so awesome that they would never book something like Ralphie May, who would use the word retard. So this guy is not a Bendite. I want to put this out there, number one. We did a little research, thank God for Facebook and the internet, (laughs) because it's so damn easy just to click on people's profiles and size them up immediately. Yeah. So to give you a little background on this idiot, he's from New Mexico, Mm -hmm. right? Decided to come up here, and he had an anti-Super Bowl party. So this is what we're talking about, people, okay? This is what we're dealing with here. (laughs) This is just some, as as one of the bookers said, he's just guys just sour grapes to begin with. Uh You know, he's just going to be that weirdo. So he's looking for something to complain about. Mm -hmm. And since we don't have any race in this town, he's just going to attack anyone who does anything else. Yeah, This town really needs some race, but that's a different conversation. In any case, he literally rallied. He got the news media involved. And mm-hmm. you know the media. You, once you see how this story developed, you can oh, realize yeah, yeah. that the media is just like, ratings. Yeah. That was it. The girl, I actually took Jessie, my daughter, down there to the candy store with her friend with with every intention of buying her candy, only so I could 
walk through this mess. Yeah. And I did literally walk through, and I videoed it and told yeah. him how great they were. Yeah. With complete sarcasm, but since they're on the West Coast, they don't know what that means. Yeah. It's a level of intelligence they haven't reached yet. So they didn't know I was insulting the hell out of them, which was great. So I walk through 20 to twenty to 30 people holding signs. Half of them are so, are so retarded, they don't even know they're sitting there. Yeah. There, how's that, people? Do you like that? There you go. They're so handicapped, they don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. So why would you even bring them and put them on television? That in itself is a slap in the yeah. face, in my opinion. So we sit, th- we, we go through this scenario. And by the way, like the show hadn't sold out until about 48 hours, maybe 24 hours. Yeah. There were 20, 48 hours out, there were seven miscellaneous seats open. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it sold out, who would want to sit by themselves, mm-hmm. but they did. Yeah. And it was a sold-out show, which was funny as hell. And whether the media helped or not, this guy just didn't do any... He didn't help himself at all. No one cared, and it probably helped sell out the show, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And the people who reported on it, News 21, and that girl's as smart as a wet towel. She just might as well just laid there. Yeah. She didn't know what the hell she was doing. I mean, this is just this town. They don't know. I mean, it's pathetic. Why would you even report on this? It's See, here's the thing, is that anybody who actually is part of Bend, grew up in Bend, knows that, like, a protesting, unless it is a Klan rally in Drake Park, nobody that is from Bend is going to protest anything happening in Bend. If they disagree with it, then they'll tell their friends and be like, hey, you know what, I don't dis- you know, I disagree with that. I'm not going to be a part of it. Right. And that's it. That that is the closest thing that anybody would actually do. Well, you guys here. really are that laid back. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. That I can handle. The problem is, Bendites are being misrepresented by assholes who come up here who were probably kicked out of their own towns. Yeah, because nobody wanted to hear their stupid shit. Yeah, and it seems like that's what it's a conglomeration of shitbags from other places like yeah. like California, Arizona, wherever the hell it is, yeah. and then retirees who are just here to chill out. Yeah, but you do have your Bendites who are from here. And they've been horribly misrepresented. Yeah. And honestly, those are the people that tend to like my act. Yeah. Like, those are the people I've made friends with in this town who are like, Tony, you got us all wrong. Yeah. You know, like, seriously. And I'm like, I hate to say you all, but when I look out in the audience, I don't see Bendites. Yeah. I see a lot of Patagonia pricks. Yeah. And I don't like those people. I don't well, like them. Yeah. Our shows at this point, half of the people that come are tourists. Right, and they just want to be entertained. They want their balls tickled without ever feeling anything inside. Yeah, they want me. They want you to walk up, spin the crank behind me, wind me up, and watch me slap the cymbals together for yeah. twenty minutes and get off the stage. Yeah, and then say ignorant things and not know that I'm in the bathroom taking a shit listening to them. It's happened. Yeah. Doesn't bother me too much. It just fuels the fire. Yeah. But the other side of this Ralphie May story was that he did get he did have an issue in Colorado, mm-hmm. and. I don't believe that people are put in situations they're not supposed to be in. Yeah. So this is my premise for what I'm about to say. I was backstage with my best friend, Phil, who works at Ranch Records, or as I call him, the big fat hippie, and he calls me the skinny little prick so we don't hurt each other's feelings. And we get along great, and he just so happened to be able to work the door that night. So it was me and my best friend in town, Yeah. ironically enough, which I had nothing, to, no control over, the Smash Brothers, Yeah. which were Ralphie Mae's opener, and Ralphie May and his manager, mm-hmm. who rolled back and forth. There wasn't one person from the booking company. They were in the they were in the audience. They were watching the show. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really happy that they had got Ralphie here. All that. So it was just this, basically it's five of us. Mm-hmm. So after I did my thing, the Smash Brothers did their thing. We all sat down side stage and we watched with Phil. We all sat there and just watched the show. Well, halfway through it, the news came out. 
this yeah. news ten, channel 21 crap what was amazing to me was the fact that two hours before that they had just they were just filming this crap so they ran back got some footage of ralphie may and take took him completely out of context now you have to understand i've only been doing stand-up for five years i have no experience with show business but to see this firsthand to see them literally murder his reputation or do their best to take a swing at Ralphie May mm-hmm. to take things way out of context to take a two second clip out of a yeah. f- 10 minute probably worked on for five how many years bit mm-hmm. to take it and slice it in half to make it look like it's their side of the story it was insane yeah and to watch that it blew my mind because yeah. no one had to tell me what was going on I saw it with my own eyes mm-hmm. I knew the story I was there for all of it. I was in the booking agent's office. I was there when they were filming this crap on the street, the protest. I was backstage when it was released. Mm-hmm. And when everything happened and the show was over, the Smash Brothers and the manager went up front and sold all the merch. Yeah. But thanks to the pricks, Ralphie May stayed, stayed backstage with who? Me and my buddy. That yeah. was it. And it was the best 35 minutes I've ever had in comedy. Yeah, It wasn't a lot of... This is what you did right and wrong. We didn't talk about my act. I knew how I felt about my act. It wasn't about that. I'm not looking for a hand up from anybody in this business. Mm -hmm. There's so many people that are in line. That's great. We're all doing what we're doing here. I wasn't looking for that. But Ralphie was very straight with me. And he just said, you know, what really happened in Grand Junction, what I had saw originally was that he was stoned off. They said he was stoned off his ass. Mm -hmm. He ate pot food. Yeah. And this was like right the next morning after it happened, I caught this story. And they said he ate pot food, and he was slurring his words, and that he didn't have it together. And so one half of the audience was bitching, while the other half, his fans, were bitching at them, and they started a, some sort of tussle. Yeah. And Ralphie May was, ex- you know, walked out the back. So that's what kind of loosely what happened. But as the story developed, it started coming out as as it went national that Ralphie May was doing cocaine, mm-hmm. and that this happened, and the cops, blah 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 blah. And I hadn't heard any of that, but he told me all this. And he said, it's just how they do it. Mm-hmm. They just keep spinning it and spinning it and spinning it. And like he said on stage and off stage to me, the only person who's profiting from this, the only people making money from this shit is the news media. Yeah. They're the only ones actually profiting. Did they bring more? Did they sell more seats for Ralphie May? Probably because a lot of us are anti-news media and like the idea of going to see people who are controversial. Mm-hmm. I do. That's why I go. Yeah. Someone say, "Hey, George Carlin shot somebody last night." I'd be at a show the next day if I had, you know, I would have gone anyway. Yeah. But the point, if Andrew Dice Clay, who is still alive, gave a three-year-old a wedgie and then told him to go fuck himself. You bet I'd be at the show the next night just to hear where the hell he was coming from. Yeah. Because I like that side of life. Yeah. I like truth, not bullshit they pump out on the news. Yeah. And by the way, if the news were real, they'd stop getting these pretty little girls to deliver it, and they get some ugly fuck with one tooth and pimples on his face. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I'm just telling you, sex sells, and they're full of shit. Of course. In any case, that's how that went with Ralphie May. He was a super cool guy, and we talked about the fact that I was in the military. We made a connection there. And then my experience, as far as if Ralphie's on drugs or anything like that, the man's been doing comedy for 25 years. Mm-hmm. He's, he weighs a lot. He's hanging in there, and he's doing stand-up. He's a performer. And whatever's, been, whatever's happened to him in his life, whatever he's put up with to get here, this is where he's at now. Yeah. And a lot of the bullshit that we've put him through as a nation is probably why he is the way he is right now. Yeah. So, fuck us. <laughs> for putting him there is the way I look at it. So yeah. maybe don't fuck with the people who actually have the balls to do this shit for 25, 30 years. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, he's passionate and he's still trying to deliver a message, unlike most comedians who are just trying to get on television. Yeah. Ralphie's one of the. I saw George Carlin. That's what really put the spark in me years ago. Yeah. I saw him perform. My mom took me. And that's why I got into stand up. He planted a seed. Yeah. I sat close. He blew my mind. I stood up and I cheered. And I saw him in South Carolina, and South Carolina is all about golf and incest or whatever the hell you want to call it <laughs> when you screw people at a family reunion. And he um, he slammed golf in yeah. Charleston, South Carolina, major golfing community. He slammed it. If I could have done a backflip because I was talented, I would have done one. I couldn't, so I just cheered. Yeah, It was that awesome. So Ralphie May is the comic, one of the comics that are alive that I've had the pleasure of watching side stage, which is awesome. And talking to who's in the current and where we're at, it's only gotten worse. That he's still trying to push the limits as best he can while keeping people on board. Mm -hmm. So I mean, he's not getting away with the shit that Carlin and Pryor and all those guys got away with. Mm -hmm. But he's still trying. I mean, that's the kind of credit that me as an up up and coming comic, I really give a lot of credit to that Mm -hmm. because the Northwest is one of the hardest damn places to use words. Like um, I heard Dave Attell used uh, had a punchline. In um, Helium Up in Portland Which number one Dave Attell In Helium in Portland Blows my mind Because yeah. they didn't They don't book dark comics Yeah And they finally are And the only reason They're doing it Is because people are coming From the east coast To the west coast mm-hmm. So these people are coming To support their comics Yeah We're finally stirring The pot a little better But he used a punchline That um I That quote Quote unquote Floor niggers Yeah In 2014 Dave Attell In Portland Oregon Got away with the punchline floor niggers. I just want to say I think that's amazing. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I mean, not going to send him flowers or nothing, but obviously he figured a way to travel around the country and get away with the same shit he could use in New York. Interesting. Which to me is progress. And the only people who haven't figured out that sort of progress are the people who live in Portland and Seattle. Yeah. They are the most uptight damn comedians I've ever met in my life. Yeah. A bunch of white kids who don't understand that they are racist. They they make they make black people feel so uncomfortable there. Yeah, I mean, and they make anyone with an aggressive opinion feel uncomfortable there. Yeah, I mean, they told me to love it or leave it, so I left. Yeah, seriously, I just want to say that about Portland. You guys got a long way to go. Yeah, I don't give a shit what you think about me. I really don't. I have no intentions of coming over there and saying anything to you other than that. Loosen your fucking pants. Yeah, and pull your head out of your ass once you've done so. But people are moving to Portland that are gonna dilute that bullshit. Mm-hmm. This hipster, I'm an ex-nerd, nobody liked me, but you can't say these things because I'm not used to being offended. Mm-hmm. Tough titty said the kitty because the milk's too sweet. I don't give a shit. Yeah. The world is an aggressive place. You know, and I Portland did. is not the place to try to pull that off. So David Tell doing so, right on. That's my piece. I just wanted to let that out. No, uh, uh, to touch on that point, uh, I did a podcast with Scoot Herring not too long ago in which he pretty much defined the open mic scene of Portland as everybody's material is exactly the same. Um, I'm a nerd. I love Taco Bell. And uh, why won't girls date me? The thing is, if you don't have that material, I think this would be a cool time to tell my cute little story about Portland and why I still do stand-up. Let's hear it. Because I wanted to quit. I'm, I'm off stage at Dante's getting ready to go up, which is a great place to do stand-up. In my opinion, honestly, Rochelle Lovecox was doing it. She's a great girl, by the way. If she ever hears this, Rochelle, you're the shit. That's all there is to it. I really like that girl. She sticks to her own. Mm-hmm. You know, she really does. And I appreciate that. But, um, so I'm doing her room, and 
There's a guy who no longer has a lot of love in Portland, but his name's Xander Holyfield. I'll call him because who the fuck cares about his last name? That I don't know. It's made up. It is, but his first name's Xander with an X. So here's the cute thing about Xander. I like to tell this little story because he is a fucking degenerate in my book. Um, he hit on me a few times. Yeah. Okay. Now I don't care if you hit on me. I really don't. That's that's up to you. I know it's I don't flattering. like dicks because I tried to blow a kid when I was 13. It didn't work out, and I got over it. I'm not into I'm not into dudes, and I don't mind you trying me out. So he tells me he says, "Look, man, he's like, I really wish you were on my team." This is right before I'm going up. But the backstory to this set is that I just found out that my ex was, you know, we were just broken up, and I found out she was screwing someone else that same night, twenty oh, minutes nice. before. So my heart's, you know, my heart, I'm pissed, yeah. super duper pissed. I'm still trying to keep a clear head because I know the number one rule in stand up is no matter how you feel, you still have to get on stage. Oh yeah. So I follow that. Yeah. So he's hitting on me, not making me feel any better about what I'm doing. Yeah. And he smacks my ass before I get on stage. Then I go up on stage. And I go about 30 seconds into what I was going to say. And then I just flip flip gears. And I go right into how he just fucking hit on me and I don't appreciate it. And I told this story, mm-hmm. which is somewhat embellished. Yeah. But basically it goes like this. When I was 16 years old, a kid grabbed my ass at Taco John's where we were working and he says to me I didn't grab your ass because I'm because we're friends I grabbed your ass because I'm a homosexual mm-hmm. and then he cornered me and made advances to me and the embellished part is which is what I pictured in my mind so well that I almost convinced myself I did it yeah. was that I took his hand and dropped a basket of potato lays on his fucking hand so he never grabbed my <laughs> ass again that didn't actually happen but I swear to god in my head I went red and that's what yeah. I, I you know so in any case I said this on stage at Dante's Okay, that's what I said. And immediately, not from the audience, but from the back corner where the nerds live, all the comedians, I hear, bigot. Now, mind you, I did go to school in the South, South Carolina, Sumter, South Carolina, if you want to get particular, which means I don't know what fucking bigot means. Yeah. Okay, I didn't. I had to look. Portland Portland kids are two things. They're nerds and they're smart, but they really can't get pussy. That's all there is to it. Oh, yeah. No wonder they're fucking each other. (laughs) So, in any case... He he calls me a bigot. I'm like, well, I just got heckled, you know. So I buy my own assholes here. Yeah. By this prick because he wants to fuck me. He's gonna call me a bigot. So ain't that the pot in the kettle? Yeah. I want a side story about him real quick. Come to find out, he's actually not gay. He just let guys blow him in this. He just let lets guys blow him. Come to find out, he's actually straight. And the stories he told about fucking a guy in the cemetery were actually a girl. So if you're a homosexual and you're listening to this, know that I love you for having the balls. To be exactly who you are And I've never criticized people for fucking their own people Just don't come hit on me yeah. That was the whole point I was trying to make on my set was I don't care what you do But don't make me feel uncomfortable for being straight Yeah, That's what I was getting at That was my summary Yeah, And I did summarize that when I got off stage So the reason to bring this all full circle At that point I was ready to quit I was ready to just go on a killing spree mm-hmm. To be honest with you I'm walking out the door of Dante's And my head's down I'm walking out just storming out And this big Black hand lands on my chest. And at this point, I think, I'm dead. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Somebody's going to kill me. I don't know what bigot means, but I'm going to get murdered for it. Yeah. And I look up, and it's a seven foot tall bouncer of the bar. And all he says to me is, he looks, he said, I look him right in the eyes, and he says, Hey, little motherfucker, cheer up. Because that was the funniest fucking shit I ever heard. And he meant it. Yeah. And to him, he got the whole thing. He knew what I was doing. He knew what I went through. He was laughing at what I said and what I went through. Yeah. And to me, it told me, Tony, you are funny. You are real. 
You're doing what you feel is right, but you're doing it in the wrong goddamn place, buddy. Yeah. That's what I learned. Yeah. Right then and there. Don't quit. You have passion like nobody's business. Yeah. But it ain't going to work here yeah. because these kids are controlling this scene and they don't know the first fucking thing about the real world. Mm-hmm. They came from Oklahoma City with their toe socks and bullshit to come to another place to feel comfortable about being who they are. Yeah. But they criticize anybody who isn't them. At least that's been my experience there. Hopefully it's changed. From what I've seen, according to cool people like Curtis Cook, it hasn't. Yeah. They still feel like he's black and he feels like he's putting up with a lot of shit there. Well, and I think that they don't know who they are in Portland. That's why they, they are a non-culture. They, they A melting pot, but no one's driving. I mean, no one's steering them anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So they have created their own little un or non-culture sort of a thing and it's become its own culture in a way which is sad because it excludes all other cultures so you can't come in from the outside and try to be a part of that you have to you have to start from the outside and slowly but surely beat yourself down until you have you know you are accepted into that culture which fucking sucks right but you don't want to be accepted by that culture like comics like Lonnie Bruin told me he's like you know, you don't want them to like you. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. Fuck them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about them liking you. I'm like, it isn't about them liking you, but when they say, when I moved, Alex Rios told me, he said, you know, they all respected what you were doing, but they fucking hate you. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. And I believe him. Yeah. And I mean, I'm probably one of the only people there that was actually a veteran, actually been around half this world. Yeah. And you don't like me? That's great, buddy, but I'm here to tell you, most Americans, we get along just fine. Yeah. So maybe you're the fucking problem here. I'm just telling it the way it is. Yeah. If I can't do it here, I'm cool with that. Well, and it's not even about being liked, I don't think. It's just... Well, liked ha- enough to be put on stage. Well, having... Respected enough to say he is funny and will put him on. Yeah. Instead of letting me go on at 2.30 at night, right when they're closing down the bar and yeah. nobody's in there, which I faced a lot of. Yeah. Because I wasn't cool enough. I what didn't a- have a cat in a fucking comic book collection. Yeah. Um... But it's Which also it's your it's uh, is your material transferable into that new culture, and of course they're not accepting of anything. So that's the difficult part. So even if whether they hate you or whatever you want at the end of the night, it's the fact that they just refuse to take in anything that is outside of their own culture, which is why your material is not transferable in Portland. Right. It's because they are just they are in their own little world and they are into that. So anything beyond that, they're just not don't want to be a part of. Right. It's the fucking hipster kids. Right. I mean, there is there is a don't get me wrong. No, there is a comedy culture in Portland that is good. Uh, It works very well. But these are comedians that have been doing comedy for 10 to 20 years that take it very seriously and they work very hard at it and they get out of Portland to perform as often as possible. Right. And they have their comedy culture and they do a really great job. It's it's more of the it's the hip hipster kids trying to do the open mic scene though that is the shitty dirty floor that we're trying to mop up on the comedy club of portland right and so if you were going to do stand up there you certainly don't want to have anything to do with open mics yeah obviously it's what we're saying avoid them at all costs <laughs> and but there's really nowhere else to go from there they have two clubs yeah they have helium excuse me and harvey's and harvey's has come around after louis ck slammed them yeah. <laughs> but in any case um you know they've they've come around and 
Harvey's finally, I read in an interview very recently, said that we used to book clean comedy because we thought that's what people wanted. Mm-hmm. Now what we're booking is good comedy. Yeah. So that, in a sense, might wise these little fuckers up a little bit. Yeah. You know, to be like, listen. And if especially if you don't book them. I mean, that's really the thing is like, don't book those little fuckers. Yeah. Okay? Let them go have their little their little powwows in places because you have people like, in my opinion, Todd Armstrong, Nathan Brandon. I mean, these guys, I mean, Scoot Herring, yeah. any comic that's in Portland that can openly admit to you that the scene is fucked. Yeah. And they're trying to do, you know, still trying to be them and bring real comedy and get in front of real comedians like Dave Attell yeah. and whatnot and really open up the scene in Portland really trying to progress, not just get stuck on, well, I don't like what they're doing, so we're not going to hang out with them. Yeah. You know, like, dude, listen to me. Comedy is criticism. That's what we do. Okay, we criticize things. We find the funny. Yeah, that's what we do. And if you really care, you're going to take things that are really hard to talk about and push on those. And that's the truth. That's where I come from. Mm-hmm. I push on the hard shit. Yeah. I don't. Get, I don't sweat the small stuff. The big stuff that I can't change is what consumes my life. Yeah. When I get on stage, I'm mad because a little old lady isn't getting social security. Yeah. That makes me mad. That's what I want to talk about, and it's highly relatable. But if it's not relatable, a bunch of fucking just barely 20-year-olds in Portland. Yeah. So, like, here's a question for you. If you're in Portland and you want to do comedy, if you're avoiding the open mic scene, how how do you work your way up? <laughs> you have to. I mean, honestly, I think it's really more at that point you can live in Portland. You find that you find that you either start your own show, build your own room, and perform there and definitely get out of there as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I haven't heard much better things about Seattle, but I haven't done comedy in Seattle only one time at the Comedy Underground a few years ago, and I had a great set. It was yeah. three minutes. I didn't know what I was doing. I told a few jokes I thought were funny. It worked well. Dude put, wrote my name on a list, which I never came back to do anything with, but it meant he would have given me a few more minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I had a good experience there. But I don't hear good things about it from other people. Yeah, I've heard people have quit. Such Adam Eagle, he doesn't do stand-up up there. Yeah. He moved up there, and he won't do stand-up up there because they flipped out about some joke he did. Yeah. Again, a bunch of fucking little white kids who just haven't experienced anything. Yeah. So what the hell are you so uptight about? I don't get it. And we can't call you out without you crying. Mm-hmm. Basically, I don't know where the hell you're going to go. Joe DeMeo, a guy who was doing stand-up comedy from New York, I mean, with that fucking name, obviously, is from the Northeast. Yeah. He said something to me that really kept me going, too. He said, Tony... He said, what you're doing in Portland isn't going to work. He said, but what they're doing in Portland isn't going to work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really stayed with me, too. So at least someone was looking out for me while I was up there. Someone was sending a few people my way to say, Tony, don't stop, because yeah. we really know you have a passion for this, and you're not going to quit. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you have that, you know, it's it's obvious. You look at my eyes, I'm never going to quit, mm-hmm. you know, to the end. I'm on, I'm on this train forever. And once you've made that commitment, you just try to figure out where you fit in. Mm-hmm. And... Sadly to say, I don't know what Austin's like, but I hear the two best places to start doing stand-up. When I was in Portland, they would say it was Portland and Austin. I disagree. I don't think it's Portland anymore. I certainly think you should go to Chicago or Austin. Or New York. Anything like that. Or like Philadelphia or any kind of like second city mm-hmm. like that. But Chicago's a place you want to go when you've done it for a few years. I think Austin's a good place to get started. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're coming from anywhere... And you're not a nerd, yeah. And you're not this hipster person, and you don't, and you have more than one gear on your bike. I'd say stay the hell away from Portland. At least that's been my experience, and I still keep hearing that. Yeah, I still keep hearing that from comics that are up there that are really trying for whatever reason to stay up there. 
that it's you know they're they've pushed through it and they're doing gigs at Helium or whatever, you know, trying to get enough together to go down to L.A. Yeah. And who's uh, uh, Jacob Christopher? Yeah. Who anyone will tell you is funny as hell. Best part I love about Jacob Christopher, he actually is from the East Coast. He tells it like it is. He doesn't give a shit what you think about it. And somehow he gets away with it. I don't know what he not he does not do in Portland, but it's worked for him mm-hmm. because he kills it at Helium. He's open for fucking everybody. Yeah. I mean, he's he's about ready to pop, in my opinion. He's oh, about God, ready to yeah. go down to oh, L.A. Yeah. and do it. Yeah. He's that funny, and he gets worked up. I love that guy. He's doing what I do. If he didn't have a kid, if we switched and I had the Coke problem and he had the kid, then I'd be in his position. Yeah. I mean, he's got the same fire. He gets up every night. He works temp service jobs yeah. to get by. That's what you do if you don't have other responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, I see it. I'm, I get a little jealous. You're damn right. I know I'm doing the right thing, and I'll get it when my time is right. Yeah. But for Jacob Christopher, I say rock on, oh, you God, know, yes. and people like Alex Rios who are still coming up there. Yeah. You know, that guy's been on two. Um, he's done two comedy festivals, not in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in other places, he's very widely accepted. He's yeah. from Central Oregon and he's nothing to do with Portland. He might have some weird tattoos and be a rock and roll guy. Yeah. And fit in on that scene. Yeah. Because Portland used to be really aggressive. Yeah. Much in the way that Bend is misunderstood. With all the Stankafornians, yeah, same and other people from other areas, shitheads, coming here, same thing happened in Portland. That was rock and roll hard ass city. Yeah, they don't know where these little fuckers came from. Ask them. Yeah, ask any of them. They'll be like, I don't know where these little fuckers came from, but this is not us. Yeah, and it's not. It was a hardcore rock and roll scene back then, mm-hmm. and that's what I thought I was moving to. Was this edgy? Doc Martens, rainy weather, like London. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was in London for a couple of years, and I loved it. Yeah, and that's what I thought I was moving to in Portland. Yeah, and it's absolutely not that at all. Hmm. It's the complete opposite. And the people who've lived there the longest are just pissed. They don't even go downtown. <laughs> so let's uh, let's transfer this over to how you've been sticking to comedy. Um, you know, you were talking about how Chris has gone through a lot of shit. He's sticking to comedy, tells it how it is. You have gone through your shit. Uh, over, oh, just in the last year, you've gotten sole custody of your daughter. Right. Which has been a huge impact on your life. Right. Um, which is the reason that we are no longer partners on Bend Comedy. You stepped down because you wanted to be a dad. And which, the same reason I left Portland, which is a blessing in disguise. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I commend you. I mean, it's to give up anything on comedy to be, uh, you know, to give up what you love for something else that you love even more. It's, it's, that was, I don't know, I, respect. Uh, I, I felt, I don't know, I'm trying to come up with a better word, but I felt more respect for you, not just as a com- comedian, but as a human being right. as well. I was like, so Tony's not just a comedian. Like, he wants to be a dad. He wants to be a father figure. He wants to care for another human being. Which is intense when I see you on stage and you rant and rave and yell and all this other angry stuff, but then you get off stage and there is your daughter. It's what what was the you don't have to get into the legal technicalities of it, but what was anything you want, dude. What was okay, what was the process um of getting sole custody of your daughter? (sighs) Well, started like this. I was in Portland doing stand up and really felt like I was progressing. I got away from my ex-girlfriend, things like that. So I felt like I was on the right track. But my daughter was here in Bend, and her mom was falling down pretty hard. I came back and caught her mom bumping pills uh, off the bathroom counter while we were all sleeping on the couch downstairs. I was just visiting Jesse for the the night. And um, 
Anyway, I go back up home, up back up to Portland, and I realize, you know, I'm really at a crossroads here. Mm-hmm. You know, things are really starting to kind of click in Portland as far as, like, I had a decent job. I was kind of having fun, you know. I was going to shove it down their throats if I stayed there. Obviously, that wasn't meant to be. But Alex and I are standing in our one-bedroom apartment together, and he looks at me, and he says, Picking Jesse over comedy at this point in your life is the most selfless thing you could ever do. Yeah. And one thing I love about Alex Rios, he may be younger than me, but he's an old soul. He's yeah. been through shit earlier in his life. And Jesse is going to be a, is an old soul. Mm-hmm. Because once you've already seen the dark side of life and the kitty cats and puppy dogs are pushed out of the way and you see life for what it really is, you become a grown-up. Even yeah. if you're only nine. I'm telling you, I've seen it. It blows my mind. But Alex is the same way. He's an old soul. And I respect where he comes from because yeah. he says shit that my parents don't say to me. Yeah. And when he put that in my head, I made my decision. And I came back here and started a very, a very long and painful journey. Mm-hmm. It was painful in the sense that my ex-girlfriend, so we're clear here, is not the same person that has the, has is my daughter's mother. Yeah. The fucked up part is when I came back, everything came to fruition. I realized that my ex, who I was still in love with, how you know, she was a full-blown meth addict, heroin addict, mm-hmm. and that had its own thing. And same time, I'm trying to figure out, figure out what's going on with my daughter's mother and my daughter. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of hard stories that are in there. Long story short, every time I went for some sort of custody, my daughter's mother would default. Yeah. 30 days would go by, she would let it go. So in both cases, how I ended up with what I have now is 85% custody, and she has to go to Mary's place to see Jesse or get clean, which I think is better than 100% custody because it keeps me from looking like the asshole. Yeah. It's really up to her mom at any point to try to get her shit together. Yeah. So achieving all that... And not getting any support except from my mom. My mom has helped us keep a roof over our head. I, mean, I was homeless. When I came back here, I was living on Terry Lynn's couch. Yeah. After I had moved back in with my girlfriend for a minute and realized that she was screwing dudes all night long while I was sleeping waiting for her to get home, yeah. which is painful as hell, and to find out that I need to go take an AIDS test, that kind of shit, that's hard <laughs> stuff to go through, and then you figure out, <clears throat> that's a frog, not a tear, just so you know. But, um, you know, this, this, I, the sad part is, is that I, I came back <coughs> you have water huh yeah. yeah I'm sorry Ryan but um I'll talk to you while you're not on the mic but basically what happened is um so I'm going I, I put my girlfriend first I put myself first when I came back instead of my daughter and I tried to work on our relationship and because of that I um went through a lot of crap and long story short that didn't work out you know and I, I put that to bed but I ended up homeless at that point with her and her meth head boyfriend taking all of my shit and you know eventually i moved into a one bedroom or a bedroom and uh slowly but surely i'm a passive guy so it took me a long time to become a man doing yeah. this makes you become a man and i wasn't a man i was just a kid with opinions at that point mm-hmm. so becoming a man to me is when you start to look you know your daughter's mother in the eye and be like no this is the way it's going to happen no she is going to go to school no, you're not in the best shape. She is going to stay here and fighting for custody. And then when you get custody of your daughter and all of this anger comes and, you know, your daughter's been convinced that you were never in her life and you were never there, which is a complete lie, but you have to f- correct all that. And that doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, Jesse and I have been at this for a year and a half. I've had custody of her and her mom hasn't seen her in eight, nine months. 
talk to her once on Christmas only to tell her that she was clean, which for 12 days, <laughs> which pissed me off. And Jesse too. 12 days of Christmas. Yeah, right? Just ironic. But in any case, I mean, we're still going through this in, in some senses. Jesse and I have gotten a hell of a lot stronger together. I still have aggression. You know, I'm still, I'm deep down inside, I'm really pissed. And I'm pissed off at everything I've been through. I'm not pissed off at the people who've done it. I'm more pissed off at the fact that it does happen in America. Nobody seems to give a shit. But that's it's that's a whole other animal. But I still have a lot of aggression. I'm a single dad. I am single. I like being single now. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine why. The listeners and everybody, I'm sure you can imagine that after all this bullshit, that you wouldn't want to be with anybody after a while when the last two girls you've dated have turned into full-blown crackheads at the exact same time. Was there a meeting? I don't know. It must have taken place when I was in Portland. But they decided to be drug addicts. And I have not done meth, and I have not done heroin, and sure as shit don't have a reason to do it now or ever. Yeah. So... It forced me to become a man. And for everything that Jesse and I have been through, she's toughening up. She went from being, as an explanation from her aunt and uncle, from being manipulative and a thief, which her mom taught her to do, was steal. Yeah. It's really sad to say, but Jesse was learning how to steal. Her mom was uh, having her kids steal. God. Um, actually, Jesse and I went into Rite Aid one night about a year ago, and lo and behold, we ran into her mom and her brothers who were stealing from Rite Aid. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, pretty small town, but obviously the things you see are the things you're meant to see. So all that crap that we've been through, like I tell Jesse, it feels like we've been on a battlefield. And last year I wanted to relocate. I wanted to get the hell out of here. And I was ready to leave. I had enough. And I don't know about people who live in one place and never leave, and you tolerate your ex and blah, 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 and maybe you're still with them. I'm telling you a secret right now. Pack your shit and leave. Not just because of that, not just because you need a break, but also because intelligence is founded through relocation. The more you experience, the more intelligent you become. So I encourage you all to get the hell out of your small towns and actually go somewhere with your life. If you have drive, follow it. If someone you're with is stopping you, get away from them. Don't say, oh, it's too hard. Listen to me, it ain't too hard. I'm just here to say right now, I'm on a little bit of a rant. This is not too hard. I thought it would be impossible. That's what's called a mommy state. Oregon is a mommy state. They were pro-mommies. Anything a mommy did, they were with it. But, like the lawyer told me, unfortunately, due to meth and heroin, they've seen more and more and more mommies drop off and dads come in and take charge. Yeah. So what you're seeing and what I'm a part of is a brand new movement, apparently, or at least it's growing in numbers, of single dads not taking part-time, not 50-50, but 100% custody. Yeah. Now, it might not last until Jessie's 18. I hope that I can keep her under my wing until then. I hope she doesn't go back to her mom because her mom just doesn't have the capability of showing Jessie how to progress past what she's already accomplished or the lack thereof. Her mom doesn't have the ability to show Jessie the promised land Yeah. because she's never been there. She hasn't yeah. even graduated high school. And her grandmother, her nana, Jessie's nana, is a prostitute in Bend God. on Backpage.com. She's on there seven days out of the month, every month, and she has seen Jesse one time in the past year and a half that she's been here. So if you're sitting there in Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas, wherever the hell you're at thinking you can't get out of a situation, you can kiss my little pale ass because you can. You damn well can. And you're selling yourself short and your kids short if you don't do it. I want to motivate people to do the right damn thing. And that's why I feel like I'm conflicted on stage. Mm -hmm. Because while I want to tell you jokes about how skinny I am and how much that's affected my life, I can see it in their eyes that they don't give a shit. 
Yeah. So I would much rather talk about things that I do give a shit about, and a lot of people seem to give a shit about, just haven't heard anyone really talk about Mm -hmm. in stand-up. The problem with that is I don't know how to make it all funny Yeah. right away. Eventually you find out a way to slam a punchline in there. Yeah. So what we're, what the whole reason I wanted to do this with you today was try to figure out, I told you I'm trying to find my voice. Yeah. My voice is tr- saying these things that I have a whole bunch of fire inside of me that I want to let out. And I feel like as I go through the rest of my life, I'm not going to run out of fire because mm-hmm. it's who I am. I'm going to keep saying things that piss me off. Bill Hicks went down to Waco, drove his Jeep down to Waco, Texas when that was happening, and he was super pissed. Yeah, that's why he was driven. A lot of people don't even know who Bill Hicks was, but he said some of the strongest shit in America at a time when it wasn't ready. And I feel like if that's where I'm at, so be it. Talking yeah. about being a single parent, admitting that a lot of moms are falling off the wagon, along with deadbeat dads who decided to do drugs, yeah. things like that. But you need to give credit to the parents who are doing the right thing. Yeah. And the bitch about doing the right thing is, especially in a town like this, and especially in a time like this when America's not ready for it, they're not used to su- su- to supporting single dads in the system. Yeah. I may have custody of Jesse, but they told me to sit and spin when I when I got laid off from the gym two weeks before Christmas. Yeah. For no reason other than the fact the prick couldn't pay me. I got laid off, and they told me to sit and spin when it came to getting any sort of cash assistance. Because they, honestly, the truth be told, they looked at me like, you're a white man. Yeah. You're supposed to work for a living. Yeah. There shouldn't be any reason you can't get a job. So, get fucked. Yeah. But we have other people out here, mainly females, who are probably the same ones whose methed out boyfriends are at home waiting for them to get that free rent. Yeah. Just so you know, if you're getting free rent and free food and a little bit of cash assistance, that's a recipe for a single mom to get on drugs. Yeah. Because she has no reason to get a fucking job. And that's exactly what happened to both of my exes. So the system has funded these has funded these addicts more than it's helped them. Yeah. So Jesse and I get no state assistance. We do get food stamps, but I was getting that anyway. Yeah. And if you know anything about living in Bend or Oregon, food stamps is how you get by. Yeah. That's all there is to it. You don't like that? You want to judge me? Go ahead. This is what it takes. I'm sorry. And no, it's not enough. I weigh 150 pounds. And there you can see all my ribs, okay? Trust me. We barely get by. Yeah. I'm not pitching. I'm just saying, telling it like it is. This is how it is. And that's what I want to do on stage. I know other comics are doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it till the day I'm dead. I've always, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah, I've always appreciated your ability to open up about very, very personal things on stage. When it's like the wound is still fresh. It I hurts. Mean, <laughs> yeah. It, on stage, it hurts. And I don't know how to make it funny always. But yeah. I feel like if I keep it in there, I'm just going to take it home to my daughter. Yeah. And when I get mad in the morning and road rage, Jesse gets it. It's immediate. She does it too. Yeah. And she thinks it's okay. And I have to stop and be like, damn it. I don't want you to be this way. But at the same time, I'm not a drug addict, yeah. and I am constructive, and the world isn't a pretty place, and men are going to try to take advantage of you. So if you have your defenses up a little bit and you understand that the world isn't a pretty place, that's better than you going out there and getting damaged right away. Yeah. You know? I don't want her to have her walls up, but I want her to know that she can put them up. Yeah. Well, and I think here's, here's an interesting metaphor is uh, comedians like myself will go up on stage and just like you know like hey look i got this little scar on my arm here's a story about this little scar uh you know here's another little scar from way back when but you go up on stage and will rip a band-aid off of a fresh wound and be like look at this one here's a story for you right and you tell it with such gusto but it's so fresh and that i guess a confidence 
in not only your talent but in your personal strength to share personal stuff like that when it's so fresh and still turn it into a joke is just absolutely amazing to me and that's something that I'm trying to strive for right now uh, every time shit happens to me and I tell you about it you're like use that on stage use it on stage I'm like my girlfriend punched me in the face that is not funny to yes, me yes it is Why? <laughs> it's fun. that's what I'm saying it's not funny to me so in my mind I think it's not funny to anybody else right so I thanks to you I am now starting to convince myself that no matter what it is I have to try it on stage first and then decide whether or not I want to keep doing it. Right. Yes. Well, like me, it's not funny for me to go up there and admit to you that the last two, one of the things I came up with was the last two girls I dated got into meth. So yeah. I'm going to start selling shirts that say, I turn girls, I turn girls into tweakers. Yeah. And people laugh at that. Yeah. But it's the truth. Do you think that I pat myself on the back for that? Yeah. It really hurts. What is Tony doing wrong in his life? That he's ending up with these people who want help and will use that because I'm the, I'm a fixer. Yeah. So fixers always get stuck. Yeah. Fixers are like I want to be a man and I want to find a real solid woman, but if I meet a halfway decent chick who needs help, I'm gonna help. Yeah. And that's how you end up with people like this. They yeah. keep sucking you dry. Yeah. So it's painful to be up there and to say this shit, and that's why it's hard for me to get on stage and I kind of. I've, like you've seen me lately There's a lot of frustration and anger coming out Because what I'm really angry about is Damn it, I want to talk about this yeah. I don't really know how to make it funny And I can't get up six nights a week to work it, work it, work it, work it, work it And yeah. that's what it takes You can write it out all you want But you're just kind of putting passion on paper Yeah, I'd rather keep that little ball of fire And put it on stage I know the premise I dated tweakers I don't know how My hat says I only date crack whores <laughs> Neat little story about that. The last time I wore that was 10 years ago before I met these two girls, right? When wow. I met these two girls, they were not on drugs. Yeah. I put that away. It was in my parents' storage in South Carolina for the last nine years that I've gone through this shit. When I went back to my parents' house for the first time in nine years, I found that fucking hat after I had been through all of this. So it's a cursed hat. Interesting. Well, I, now <laughs> I wear that. I wear that hat and kind of like that sarcastic, like, now it's true. Yeah. Now it's true. It's funny. I didn't wear it for nine years, but it still happened, so I might as well wear the damn hat, and hopefully I'll appeal the opposite this yeah. time. I don't know, but I wear it as kind of like a constant joke. If you know Tony, and my boss does, and she lets me wear that to work at Perea, yeah. she knows that he's not joking. Yeah. And that's what so many people who've come to see my act who know me will always, they'll be whispering when they see me with their friends, they'll say, he's not making that up. Yeah. And I don't know what to tell these people on stage I can only tell you so many times that I'm not bullshitting you. Yeah. But I'm not bullshitting you. And that's why it's not 100% funny all the time. Yeah. Because I'm not bullshitting you, and I'm working it out in my head. And if I'm looking at the ground, like Sean McBride said, he's like, look up at them when you talk. Yeah. Don't lose that attention you've gained. Well, it's hard when I'm actually looking into my mind's eye and pulling things out. So mm -hmm. if I'm looking at the ground, I'm thinking. Yeah. If I can't look some woman in the eye with big tits that I really like to screw because I'm single yeah. and think about the hard shit I'm about to unleash, yeah. I have to look at the ground to think. Yeah. And people have told me, Tony, I really like two things about you. These are my best friends that I trust, too, and people from the audience, but the general consensus is I like it when you rant, when you go off, mm -hmm. let it out. That's when you're funniest. But I also hear that's where I'm scariest if you yeah. don't know me. Well, and see, that's why you get away with the lack of laughs per minute. Is because you. If I get away with it though, because I don't feel good when I get off stage. Well, <laughs> I don't feel like I did my job. But again, it's balancing the anger and the comedy. 
uh, Bill Hicks walked that line better than anybody. He where, had 300 days a year to do it, too. Yeah, you have <laughs> to be... Yeah, you can go on stage, you can rant, you can be angry and do all of that, but you have to be funnier than you are angry. And Bill Hicks walked that fucking line. And that's where I'm working towards. Yeah. And you, when you, before you went to Portland, when we first met, you were all angry. You were just angry. You would go up there and be like, I don't understand where he's going with comedy. I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And then you went to Portland and came back. And I think you realized the same thing is that you still, you can be, you can go up there. You can rant. You can, you can cuss out every single person in the room as long as you're slightly funnier than you are angry. Right, because then people are still on board and be like, "Oh, this guy's ranting, but in a hysterical way." Right. So it's you know talking about you can you can be you can be the biggest bigot in the world as long as you are still slightly funnier. Right. So that is why the audience I feel like for you is so on board is because your honesty, um, uh, your honesty and openness helps give you more funny points. So it's not that you're funny, it's that you are more uh, personal, you connect with the audience right. better. Uh, so you can still be angry and do all that ranting, and uh, when you don't get laughs, no, you're not funnier than you are angry, but you still have that personal connection with the audience that you've created by being that honest on stage that gives you that little boost above the negative. Right. If that makes sense. That's no, I mean, to me, it does. And I think that's exactly where I'm at right now is that I'm getting a little frustrated with the fact that it this is what I want to do on stage, but I want to be funnier about it. And the last couple of times I've been on stage, I felt like I've been holding back. I've been, instead of just being like, the reason I say that I feel like I found my voice and my voice to me means what you are up there, what who you are, what you're going to do, what you're about. And to me, it's like I've experienced a lot of shit, and I've been and I I rant and I rave. That's how I communicate. Yeah. I show my passion through anger and yelling, and I might not even be angry about it. Yeah. You know, I might just be going off like about Twinkies. I can do that. I yeah. can go off on anything. It's just that my main thing is that I've been through a lot of crap lately, and it's a release for me. And I only get it once or twice a week. Yeah. When it's uh, we're paying you to get up here, and you're doing it four or five nights a week, and you can hone on some stuff. And you're in front of an audience who condones that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, I really believe and know in my heart that I'm a hell of a lot funnier back east yeah. than I am here. Yeah. Now, I'm not, and we know that I'm headed back that way and in a few months, and I'm excited for that. A little nervous because I don't know how it's going to go. Yeah. You know, of course you don't know, but at the same time, I feel like I'm finally just going to be able to relax. Yeah. Say, okay, they're going to let me get away with this. And in that sense, I'll kind of like finally shave off and become funnier with my rants. Yeah. Because what I really do is I rant. I go off. You give me a topic and I go off. I've, ri I've written so many jokes and I love my jokes, but I hate repeating them. Yeah. You know, like people said, like I like about you, Tony, is that when you're up there, you might do the same topic that I've seen you do before, but it's never the same. Yeah. And to not be cheesy, but I have to hear this shit more than anybody else does. Yeah. I have to listen to this. I have to well, keep repeating it. So. Was it Bill Burr's last special? 
almost every single premise that he had was the exact same premises from prior specials. Yeah. But he did completely different new angles. Up. Yeah. He even said like, "Hey, I know I talked about this shit before, but this stuff is still pissing me off, so I still want to talk about." It. Right. And then just not like at the beginning, he would touch on what he said before, and then he would just go off on a brand new rant. Yes. And it's hysterical. And that's where I'm headed. Yeah. But people have to understand that one, I'm probably in the wrong damn place to work this out. Yeah. And two, I'm in the middle of working it out. Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. And yeah. I'm not confident in it yet. I mean, in front of a strange audience, half are tourists and half are the people that I despise. Yeah. It's true. I'm in front of those people and I don't like them. Yeah. I know half of them drove Audis. I have a big problem with wealth. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm not backing down. I'm. I'm very passionate. That's a whole other podcast. A whole other rant. I have a big problem with wealth. Big ass problem with it. You can't share. You used to get your ass kicked when I was a kid. You couldn't share. You got your head kicked, and that's all there was to it. But these days, you can't share. Everyone just whines about it in the corner, and you drive over them in your Audi. So no big deal. Yeah. I have a problem with that. And when I know those fuckers are in my audience, it makes me feel like, ah, what do I do? Yeah. So the last time I was on stage, at one point, only Chelsea Woodmancy was laughing at my shit. Yeah. Out of the 50 people that were in there, the back part did not laugh. At least I didn't hear him laugh. Yeah. And there was a steady table or two that was with me. Mm -hmm. And I would call them in the future my audience. Yeah. And the rest of them, not so much. Yeah. And that's okay with me. But this is the hard part is when you're trying to find yourself and you're definitely a ranting, angry, but angry on the same side as a lot of people. You're angry. I'm angry for people. Mm -hmm. It's not just me. I get angry because, for instance, a girl that I'm seeing right now, she's uh, putting up with a lot of shit like I am. We're in the much same situation. She has custody of her two daughters, mm -hmm. twins. Not easy. She has a lot of health issues. And she works at a law office. Makes 11 bucks an hour. Yeah. Completely shit on for what she does. And her boss is a pain in the ass. And her boss's dad sent her a pic or sent her a message today who's seventy something years old and says, When the timing's right, you know I'm gonna fuck the shit out of you. What? See, now to me, I've always looked at myself kinda like a warrior. Mm -hmm. Kind of like my parents used to get mad about stuff like, God damn it, we're lost in, in Paris and we don't know where the hell we're going. Mm -hmm. I'm a fixer. So what did I do? I would go ask a stranger in France. Yeah. Fifteen years old. Hey, where's El Toilet? Where's the pisser at? I grab my crotch, and the next thing you know, we're going to the bathroom. Yeah. And my parents would, like, you know, my dad never wanted to admit it. My mom would be like, hey, fucking, you got balls. Thanks. Yeah. Same thing here. I might be an angry... My daughter says because of my hair that I look like Alf. Yeah. And if any of you guys remember the great TV show from the 80s and 90s, Alf, I've broken it down to that. Alf, A-L-F, angry little fucker. And <laughs> All of that fits me, does it not? I mean, look at the hair, buddy. I mean, I look like Alf right now. And it fits me. I'm an angry little fucker. Yeah. That's it. All three words are solid for me. Give yeah. me the furry costume. I'll put it on. Yeah. I swear. But I'm not an angry little fucker just for me. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'm headed. I'm not angry just for me. I'm angry for whoever's with me. You know? Yeah. If you're pissed because you're unjustified, kind of like a superhero, like a verbal superhero. Yeah. That's how I want to, in the future, that's what it is. I really want to get a consensus before I go on stage. Be like, hey, you can go right now to my webpage and text what you're pissed off about. And yeah. before I go on there, I'm going to put this shit in my head. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about. Because then they're really with you. 
Yeah. You know, like, he is pissed, but he can be pissed at anything that he can relate to. Mm-hmm. So, in this situation, she's the girl, she, she's seen my act, she likes me, she thinks I'm funny as hell. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I know that you're five years in, you're going places, you know, you're not there yet, but you're funny. You say, you say the shit I like to hear. Those are the reasons I get on stage. Yeah. Some fucking prick thinks that he can do that to that woman and get away with it, and she can't leave that job because she's fucked. Yeah. That's why I'm on stage. Yeah. That's why I'm mad, and that's why I'm trying to learn how to communicate that on stage. That's why I wanted to do this podcast today. Instead of go get on stage tomorrow night at a restaurant. Yeah. And try to figure this out. Yeah. I wanted to talk about this with you because that gives me one more, okay, you've already talked about it. Yeah. So now let's bring it on stage. Let's let's tell these people why you're an angry, why you're an ALF. Yeah. How you are and that you're not against them directly unless they fit into said categories. Yeah. You're rich, you're a prick, and you don't like this material. I wish I could tell you to leave, but I can't yet. Yeah. You know, I don't want people to walk out. But I do, yeah, in a sense. So that's really where I'm headed, and I'm starting to realize that. day Every day I'm getting a little bit better at, like, why are you angry, and who are you angry for? Mm-hmm. And really, I'm all about the 99%. Yeah. That's really what I'm angry about. There's always going to be world issues, and right now it's wealth and climate change. Those are the two. Yeah. And a lot of it's based on ignorance. And I also have my own issues. Crackhead mother, things like that. Yeah. My daughter becoming more like me, and that scares the hell out of me, too. So, you know, but there's it, yeah. So, anyway. one reason that I really wanted to do this, and I was glad that you uh, asked, was because last night you sent me a text that just intrigued the crap out of me coming from you. I'm going to read this. Uh, more than anything, I am ready to become more vulnerable on stage. Right. Now, people listening probably don't know Tony G as well as I do, but to hear Tony G say that he wants to be vulnerable is just a very dramatic turn for you. Well, let's give the quick background. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard an ex-Marine truck driver from Philadelphia no. say that they wanted to be vulnerable? Yeah. And that's exactly what I am. That is, yeah, ridiculous. And I come off on that edge pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I am ready to be more vulnerable. Yeah. And I want to be more vulnerable. I There's nothing that's happened in my life unless legally I could get in trouble for it. Yeah. Due to statute of limitations, <laughs> true. <Yeah. laughs> it's funny, but it's true that I won't say. Yeah. Um, I just want to know that I'm helping people by saying it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. I'd rather know that someone <sighs> had a fucking dickhead dad. Yeah. Had a had a hard life with their father and down there on in the audience. I'd rather know that. Like I said, I mean, I think it'd be a good idea to put something out where people could put shit in like little pieces of paper in a hat. Yeah. And I made my set list based off of what the audience is pissed off about. Yeah. Because then I could coin it back to me. Say, like, well, these are the things that I went through, and I feel like a couple people in this audience could relate to that. Yeah. You know, it really is. I'm up there for them and me. And I want, but yeah, I want to be more vulnerable. I mean, to me, I'm being vulnerable right now by talking about the fact, you know, with my daughter and with my exes and things like that. But like, I mean, I even mentioned the fact that I tried to blow a 13 year old when I was 13. Yeah. Not fucking 21. (laughs) But I remember that. It was before I actually had sex with anybody. And I just guess I was full of emotions and I decided I want to suck on a penis. How'd it go? He denied me. Oh. Denied. We sat in this weird hole, like in a construction area, and I went for it, and he denied me. Yeah. And I'm glad as hell he did, because I'm not gay. Yeah. 
but I certainly went down that road for a minute, just full of emotions, full of being a young kid, ready to fuck anything that moves, ready to do anything just to feel a different kind of release yeah. than what I was bringing myself. Yeah. I did that. And so, like, if anyone's on here, he's like, oh, well, he's a homophobe. Like, no, I'm not. I just know I really like pussy. <laughs> I love the, I love pussy. I'm a cancer, by the way, ladies. And if you've done your research, look up cancers and sex. That's all I'm going to say. Google cancers and lovemaking and see what it comes out as. They'll also say that we're crazy, but I guarantee you there's something about water signs who love to be squirted all over the face. Something about <laughs> moisture. Hey, why not get a little dirty? It's getting towards, you know, we're, we're getting, we're farther into the show now. But so, yes. Okay. Uh, not to get too disgusting, but put the wheels back on the wagon. But yeah, <laughs> let me. Okay, vulnerable. So I want to go. I want to go into a very deep place here. Uh, think about who you were a year ago. Uh, you were going through all of this shit. You're getting custody. A lot of shit was going down. Mm. Um, you still were sticking to comedy. You wanted to do it, but you knew that you had to make sacrifices for shit that was going on in your life. Yeah. You didn't have your voice, but you were on your way there. Um, you you had more confidence in yourself, but you didn't have the opportunities to perform as much. So here's my question. Now that you feel that you're finding your voice and who you are and getting more comfortable on stage, if you, what advice would you give to Tony G from a year ago based on what you know now? Well, it would have been more like hang in there, smoke less pot, I mean, seriously, this is something, I mean, I really kind of left the curtains closed in the house for a year, was lazy, you know, lazy, just really focusing on the past, Yeah. and I think that I had to go through that, but the advice I could have give me, given myself was that it is going to work out, mm -hmm. and you're doing, because I've, I've made the right choices, the right things are going to happen for me, mm -hmm. and to just try to enjoy the moment, just relax and enjoy the ride. Instead of focusing on what you want next, enjoy what you've already accomplished. Yeah. That's what I would have told myself a year ago, mm -hmm. just to calm down a little bit. And, you know, I was smoking cigarettes and I was smoking weed, two things. I mean, weed, I'm not against. I have a medical card. But when you're smoking all the time, you really, you disconnect. For me, I disconnected from who I actually am. And in the last month, I've really dialed back on my smoking because mm -hmm. I know I'm headed out of here. And I know that I'm tired of being this goofy stoner guy on stage. And that's why people are laughing at me is because I'm stoned. Yeah. That's not why I'm on stage. Yeah. I smoke for me at the end of the night. So to me, that was important. And to just get my shit back together. Yeah. To take care of myself. Because honestly, my kid's watching me. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing. And I think I stayed on track pretty well with that. I didn't... I always had her in mind. I never bashed her mom any more than she was bashing. We talked about her mom. We don't bash on her mom. Yeah. Her mom isn't a bad person. It's just... It's no, a bad just, situation. Right. I mean, I, 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 it's not fair for me to bash drug addicts. Yeah. It's just not. So, I mean, if anything, it's just like, it's going to come. Mm -hmm. That's what I would tell myself. Like, it's coming. And it, to me, it's patience. Because even now, I can't get up as much as I want. Yeah. And things are happening in the future. Moves are already being made by other family members to meet me there. Who mm -hmm. really do appreciate what I've done. And also appreciate the fact that I am an, uh, a lone wolf and I am raising Jesse according to my own, you know, you've seen how a lot of people have been around Jesse and I see that I'm not conventional. Don't you? But at the same time, this is what I feel is right. Yeah. So I'm very honest about certain things, about everything. And, you know, just being myself. Yeah. I don't know, I kind of fell well, off on that one. But. And see, this, this is what kills me is that 
I know that Jesse's going to grow up being a very smart, very accomplished girl. Because, be, well, and because of the experiences that she's had in her life. I mean, it's she the old soul concept. Yeah, it's it's seen, not that she has. I mean, yes, she's been through a lot of shit, but it's not specifically happened to her. It's just shitty stuff that's happening around her that she's been observing she's and been forced to live through stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that you know that experience will you know let her know that you know whatever happens in her life it's probably not going to be as bad as it was back then and she can see how to avoid those things right and you as a father raising her it it kills me on the inside to see uh not she's nine right yeah a nine-year-old girl at a comedy show with us talking on stage like we do but on the other side of it that experience i mean she's already grown up at this point because of all of this really anybody will tell you that yeah it's hard to swallow it's is it right no but neither is yeah abandon your kid for drugs yeah so. exactly so i mean to see a nine-year-old girl at the show i'm just like ugh, that eats at me but at the same time knowing you knowing your daughter and everything that you guys have gone through her being there is just a review like the stuff that you talk about on stage when she's there she's like she was there during all of that if right. she if she pursued comedy, she would be on stage talking about the exact same shit. Right. And I hope that someday she does pursue comedy and that she can do that. Um, but it's it's I don't know. It's a very unique situation, and I think that and, you are handling it as well as you can. And I mean, for her sake, at this point, as being the, the the class of dad that you were trying to be, as long as you continue that, then everything for her is going the right way. Right. So it's, you know, being the protective dad, you are saving her from all the negative things, but you aren't sheltering her from the negative things. Right, right. Which I think is going to give her a huge leg up, not only on the East Coast, but anywhere she goes on in her life. That she now has that strength and confidence in the outcome of things that she's she's set she knows what she's doing at this point and that is it's a very unique like there are there are thousands of books and movies and stories that start out exactly like this and I, we've had this conversation before i swear to god i if you don't do it in real life i'm gonna make a movie about you and jesse oh, going on the road yeah. she becomes your manager at the age of like 13 or something I like it. that i mean the way we're going like we yeah. talked about this the kid and i she's just not at that level but yeah. once she realizes that once I put a phone in her hand with all these apps and shit on it, yeah, she's going to start realizing, I'm just taking pictures of them and throwing them up on the internet. Yeah. And that's promotion. That's managing yeah. right there. Something old Tony G doesn't like to do. Yeah. And I don't like that. But for her, it's like, look, kid, I'm going to put this $100, well, excuse me, $1,000 phone in your hand. <laughs> and, you know, do what you do with it. Yeah. All I ask in return is that you help just put me out there. Yeah. Post, because... People are suckers for stupid shit. No oh, yeah. offense, but you guys are nuts. Looking at yeah. Tinder, I mean, looking at what? Not Tinder. That's what I look at because I'm desperate. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Instagram, Twitter, all that whatever. Shit. Yeah, all of it. You know, to me, it's just like because that's what it takes to get people to follow you. Which doesn't mean shit. It doesn't mean you're gonna leave your ass, your leave your couch and your fat ass and come to the show. But I hope that you do. Um, yes, I. It is an aspiration of mine that. Jesse and I are able to maintain our relationship, not turn on each other when she hits puberty, <laughs> and you know, hopefully work together. If that's what's meant to happen, then right on. Yeah. You know, and you never know; it might just happen. Yeah. Once she starts realizing what's going on around her, 
And if not, I'll support whatever the hell she wants to do. Yeah. But I do know that after standing in my at one bedroom with Alex and him telling me that was the most selfless thing that I could ever do was go for Jesse and put everything else on the back burner, which it painfully is what I've done, and it's made me very very much a strong person. And the rewards are starting to come. And I think that's my this whole voice thing. And the reason I told you I'm ready to become more vulnerable is I'm ready to tell people, hey, I'm not actually an angry dick. Yeah. At you. Yeah. I am angry, but I'm not mad at you guys. And here's the reasons that I'm angry. Yeah. Some of the choices that I made, some of the things I put up with on a nightly basis. Yeah. You know, I mean, having to go from being that weekend dad which I was for eight years. Mm-hmm. Every weekend I had my kid, more or less, depending on what was going on, but usually I had her, and I paid child support, never missed a fucking payment. Yeah. Even paid early when her mom was on drugs and I didn't know it. Yeah. I was going down to Western Union and sending out 40, 50 bucks here and there because I thought I was helping Jesse because she was quote-unquote sick Yeah, and come to find out her mom was just buying smack. That's good. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the God. shit. I still, like, I, I lay in bed at night sometimes and I'm just it, get, it gets me going. So when I get yeah. on stage, forgive me if that's what's in my head. Yeah. You know, I can't help it. I just got on stage. The last time I got on stage, Dana's learning how to host. Yeah. Dana, before I got on stage, Dana and I are talking about me being a single dad. Yeah. So it's not like I'm off in a corner somewhere concentrating on what I'm going to say. She talked about how much, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. You're a great, blah, blah, blah. We went back and forth. I started opening up to her. Then she goes and grabs the mic, doesn't tell a joke, and brings me on. Yeah. So I'm like, whoa, I was just talking about this, and now I have to switch gears and tell a joke. Yeah. What I really want to do is just kind of pick up where I just was because yeah. my emotions are still pumping. Oh, yeah. And it's like I was just talking about my kid with a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> is that funnier to anybody? <laughs> you know? Because yeah. that's what was just happening. Like I told you before, to connect the audience into wherever I just was in my mind mm-hmm. before I got on stage. Yeah. Because then that lets me go back to being Tony G. And lately I've felt like I'm half Tony G and half faking the funk. Yeah. And when I get to these dead points, I just start telling you, oh, fuck it, I don't care. It's just me saying, I don't know what the hell, where the hell I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. I just want to be me, rant and ramble, and I know it's going to be funny because mm-hmm. I know I'm on stage. Yeah. So that's what I'm that's what I'm weeding away at. And I think that's all coming because I've made that big major choice. Yeah. And the one thing that I'm still not comfortable with, and Dana, bless her heart, you brought over all and you too brought over all these groceries from Dana. Organic stuff, which I love by the way. <laughs> that, that killed me. Jesse almost fell over when she realized there was two big ass containers of Nutella. So <laughs> obviously we've lived in Oregon way too long. But um because <laughs> I didn't know what that shit was when I moved out here. But in any case, I don't know how to handle it. I don't know what to say because it's so new to me when people say, wow, you're really doing a good thing and I really appreciate it or we respect what you're doing and, you know, the compliments that I've received from you and Elaine and everybody, strangers, it's great, but I don't know what to, I don't know what to say to it. It's just yeah. like, well, that's great and I appreciate it, but it's still my life and it's just what I'm doing. I mean, I couldn't see doing it any other way, Yeah. but I don't know how to take the con- that compliment. What do I do? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, but I mean, when people start giving me like food and things like that, like I said, it, I appreciate it. But in a sense, it kind of makes me feel like I'm not doing my job because my job is to put food on the table. Yeah. So when people give me stuff, it's like, eh. but at the same time, I'm a single dad who's not getting any help, not getting any child support. Yeah. You know. So at that point, it's just like I've been learning over the years, especially with Jesse in my custody. How to take help? Yeah. How to ask for it and how to ap- show appreciation. Well, maybe you're just missing 
you're not going grocery shopping, but technically what you were given was because you were doing your job. The right. only thing Dana did was take out take the grocery shopping out of the equation. Right. You are you Dana first of all has a huge respect for you. She has an intellectual comedy boner for you. And I feel like that is a very apt description. Right. And see I don't know what that even means cuz I mean I've we talked about what I've been through to co- in comedy up to this point. No yeah. one's given a shit about me. Yeah. But no see, one's been motive. I mean, not. I mean, you have a. You know what I mean. But I'm not used to it. People being like, yeah. It was always the flip side. It was always like I was that way. Mm-hmm. You're asking questions, and now it's coming back to me, and it's like, hey, we really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. And it's like I don't feel like I'm doing much. Yeah. Because I don't give myself a lot of credit. But as long as you are doing what you want to do and you grow, eventually there are going to be people that are going to be under you and look up to you and want to be like you, want to learn from you. And that's mostly what Dana wants, right. is that she came in and I taught her. We put, went through this whole comedy boot camp thing, did her first showcase. And at the end, after her first showcase, that was it. That, her, the boot camp consists of us handing her a blank notebook holding her hand up until she performs at her very first showcase. So that entire process, she did that. And the next day, she emailed me begging to still be part of Bend Comedy and continue to do comedy. And I was like, no, 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 your boot camp ended. But you are now a part of this. As long as you want to keep doing comedy, you are still a part of this community. Right. And I have taught her as much as I can and do everything I can. But like you're the whole reason we're doing this podcast is because you are having some sort of intellectual realization um, combined with your comedy and figuring out who you are, who you are on stage. I am just now slightly convinced that I have an idea of how I can find my voice. Right. And such a slow process. Yes, it is. And you never know. Uh, you don't realize until a day after a set that you're like, oh, I, I think I'm slightly closer to finding my voice now. Right. And it's just awkward to do. And Dana's trying to find herself. And right now she just needs confidence in herself. Yeah. She constantly talks about how at her job she can walk into a room full of people that she's never met before and just start cracking jokes and making people laugh. And she works at the hospital. She works it. with some terminal patients but still walks into the room, knows how to work that crowd and make them happy, get mm. them to laugh, have jokes and stuff like that. So she has that confidence in her job. So I'm getting her to host right now. So I'm trying to see if I can transfer that confidence into her on stage. And she, that is something that I want her to learn from you because you have that ability more than I do. I mean, I can do it, but I don't, I don't fully understand how I do it. Right. And it's really what it is. is I think comedy is confidence, which turns into comfortability. When before I got into stand-up, I was working a tool counter at COCC at the automotive lab, and I used it like my stage. Yeah. People would come up and get tool chits, and I would go off on something yeah and people are like you got to do stand-up eventually someone gave me a dvd of bill hicks they burned for me i've yeah. never seen bill hicks before the light bulb went off and i decided you know i needed to do it but what i've realized over the years is you standing amidst that circle of people or in that room that you walk into and you make everyone laugh that's the seed that's planted now what you're trying to do and you will do if you don't give up is how to do that to a room full of strangers on command yeah not just when you're feeling funny. Yeah. Not just because she's comfortable in the hospital 
Mm-hmm. That's why she can get away with it. Yeah. So what she's looking for is her confidence, her comfortability. Yeah. On any stage. Yeah. And that's a damn trick. Yeah. Is you know eventually she'll get comfortable at Summit. She'll get comfortable at Cabin Twenty Two if it's an environmental thing for her. Oh yeah. Or she'll just get used to putting a mic in her hand and knowing to turn it on. Yeah. And it's really hard because I mean that's what they say. You know you find your voice maybe around year five, six, seven, eight, but you don't even know what the hell you're doing until year ten. Mm-hmm. And I take that all the way. I listen to the people who tell you that, you know, like, you know, Artie Lang, whoever the hell you're listening to, they all say the same thing. So to me, it's like, cool, I'm halfway there. Yeah. And that's just kind of how I look at it, you know. And then once you're there, then I think you're ready to actually start really being booked and really start working the circuit. Yeah. That kind of thing. You know how to relate it to audiences, blah, blah, blah. You know who you are and you know how to establish that with the audience. That's 10 years of comedy. That's It's a really long walk to get there. And mm-hmm. I think if you're not infected and you're not dedicated, you're not going to get there. But that's why I've told you and I've told other people, use the shit that's happened in your life and you'll get to your voice a hell of a lot quicker, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I think that's where comedy is and it's going to continue to go mm-hmm. because people aren't interested anymore really necessarily on your opinions on politics unless that's your niche. Mm-hmm. But first they're interested in who you are and where you're coming from. They want to hear your story, your fuck-ups, your follies. That's what they want to hear. Yeah. Your lessons you've learned. That's what they want to hear. And so the comics who decide to go that route, like Louis C.K. just started doing this like a couple of years ago, what I'm doing, really digging in on himself. Yeah. He was doing some other kind of stuff for years and years and years and years and years. And he finally is like, you know what? I've been through enough shit. That's what I know. That's the material I'm going to do. And people love Louis C.K. for that. Mm-hmm. He's They call him the George Carlin of our, of our time. Oh, we got it. But yeah. he is not George Carlin because the one thing George Carlin did not do was talk about himself. Yeah. He admitted that in his book. Um, last words. He said, one thing I didn't do was talk about myself. I talked about everything else. But that's Holy changed shit. now. You can't get away with that. I never realized that. He never yeah. did talk about himself. No. He always talked about other shit. Weird. His opinions on shit, but he never said, hey, this is where I'm coming from. This is what I've done. Isn't that goofy? He never yeah. did that. Huh. But that was the end of an era. Yeah. You know, as far as like, now everything's been covered. Mm-hmm. From cats, dogs, to submarines, we've talked about it all. Yeah. The only and thing like, left is yourself. The only thing left is yourself, which says in the Comedy Bible by Judy Carter, I think her mm-hmm. name is. I just want to give her credit because I did get it out of there. Oh, yeah. But um, that's that's where it's at now. So when I hear you guys on stage, like George talking about, his, he has like five minutes. Yeah. Or Juan has ten minutes. But damn it, they keep repeating the same jokes. Yeah. And you're going to get tired of comedy, and they're going to get tired of you really fast. But every day something happens to you that causes an emotional response. Yeah. And it's either weird, hard, stupid, or scary, as the Comedy Bible says. Mm -hmm. And so use it. Like you said, from now on I should go on stage and be like, you know, every to me my philosophy is that life's full of lessons. Well, these are the ones that I learned today. Mm -hmm. You know, start right there. Yeah. You know, what did I learn today? Well, I learned that I that there's 32 security cameras at a mini mart right down the street from where you live. And there's 15 employees and this is supposed to be one of the safest communities in America. Yeah. And one mini mart has 32 cameras and two signs that tell people that next to each other. Yeah. So obviously this isn't the safest place to live. So I learned that people no matter where the hell you live are still scared shitless of each other. Oh god, yes. So that's one of the lessons I learned today. Is that funny? No, it just fucking happened, but it is something that I learned. Yeah. You know, and I can bring that up. And then you just throw the what if in there and start making it funny. Yeah. You have to learn the rules of comedy. If you're listening to this trying to get into stand up, you must Someone told me this, Morgan Preston told me this. 
when I was starting out, and he said, and it was really good because the good shit always sticks with you. Also with your jokes. If you can't remember the joke, get rid of it. I'll tell you right now. Mm-hmm. Just, just don't just save yourself the time. If you can't remember it, fucking forget about it. But he told me, he says, you have to learn the rules to comedy before you can break them. Mm-hmm. And I mean that. So look up, get some books, read some shit, yeah. learn the rules, learn how to make a punchline. Don't just go up there and talk. Yeah. Never read a book about com- and never read a book about comedy. Never ask any questions. Never sit down and learn to write jokes, even if these jokes aren't about your life. I have a bunch of shit written that doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. Yeah. But I learned how to write jokes, and what's cool about that is now when I'm on stage, I can write those jokes in my head on the spot. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, geez, how's he going to make this funny? Well, he knows the rule of three. Yeah. So he'll use the rule of three to get out of this. That's what it is. It's to me. Once you know how to write jokes, you use those different patterns and techniques to get yourself out of the rant. Yeah. Or to get yourself out of this chunk of material that you have no punchline for. You force yourself into a punchline. It's like going on stage with an idea, putting a gun to your head, and saying, "This shit better work." Yeah. And if it doesn't work, you admit it. And if it does work, you just forced yourself to come up with a punchline in front of an audience. Yeah. That's why my journals are full. But I hate sitting down writing 10, 20 pages to get to this one thing. By then, all my passion's gone for it. Yeah. I'd rather find my passion on stage. Yeah. So that's why I say it's scary to get up there and be like, I'm ready to become vulnerable, and I'm ready to talk about this hard shit instead of just making one cute joke about the fact that my daughter's mother is a tweaker Mm -hmm. to go up there not knowing what I said about it last time, not relying on it at all, and going up there again with a blank slate and basically saying... My the last two girls I dated are crack whores. Yeah, and that's why I wear the hat as a sick reminder mm-hmm. because I think it's funny now. Yeah, you know, and that's not funny, but I just keep working it and working it and working it until I, eventually on stage I force myself to find the funny in it. I got a story for you. So my new writing style in my notebook, I do one bit per page and just keep going. And then next time I perform, a blank page is my set list of all of those past jokes. That's good. And then it's a timeline. So then I write more jokes, next set list, and going on. But for the last three performances, I skipped a joke that was about my ex-girlfriend. And the, yes, the one that punched me in the face. And that when it happened, you're like, you got to do this shit, man. And I was like, I know, but I, I don't feel comfortable doing it on stage. And for three performances, I skipped over this joke every single time. Uh, in Prineville, I did the joke. Um, I, and what's great is that when I came across the page, I was just like, I don't want to do... All right, fuck, I'll fucking do it. And I completely cut the joke down. I completely rewrote it as I was doing it. So yes, gun to my head situation. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this fucking joke, but I'm going to make it funny. So just completely throughout the entire joke that I had written down, word for word, how I wanted it to say on stage. And I was like, no, fuck that. And I switched it around and it came out so clear and so precise. It was one of, it got a huge laugh. And what was interesting... So glad to hear that. Yeah. And what was interesting about this night is that this was all brand new material stuff that was just I had just written in the last week or two. And uh, there were... This was in uh, Prineville, of oh course, yeah. oh which yeah. is a pretty crappy room. Well, we've done, <laughs> but <laughs> it's... I mean, it's a fun room, but it can be shitty at times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when, we, when we started the show, there were less than 12 people in the bar. People were still coming in as the show was getting started. Which is also a pain in the ass. But, but there were three people way down at the opposite end of the bar, at the opposite end of the room, completely catty corner to where the stage is. They were just sitting there, and none of them were looking at the stage. But after every single one of my jokes, they were talking the entire time. 
But after every single one of my jokes, those three in the very back laughed harder than anybody else in the room. So the drunks that weren't even paying attention, I had under my thumb, and they were just loving my material. And eventually I was like, you know, if you guys want to move up to the front here, you're more than welcome to. And they just kind of sat back there the whole time. And they were doing their best to have their own conversation and, you know, pay attention to themselves. But somehow they were still hearing your jokes. Yeah, they were still really So were they purposely the being dicks? <laughs> you no. know what I mean? But you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like they'd be a part of the show or... And that yeah, was the weird thing, is yeah. that I thought that they were just trying to be dicks, but no, they, they weren't there for the show, so they were just doing their own thing, and once the show started, they couldn't help but enjoy the material, which gave me confidence in my material. Right. Like, if I can make three, you know, 50-something Prineville drunks, you know, appreciate my material when they weren't even there for comedy in the first place, then that gives me that confidence to do ex-girlfriend jokes. Stuff right. that I don't think is funny, but apparently people in the audience love. So it's getting over that hurdle. And like that, that is one of my examples of, okay, this is something that sort of gives me the idea that I'm on the way to finding my voice. Yeah, you're, I don't believe you'll find your voice by going up there and pulling the, the Hollywood shuffle. Yeah. Which is, I'm just trying to get into acting and being a movie star so I'm going to just be funny. Yeah. And you see these comics because once they get a special, they disappear. But usually the jokes don't have, they don't mean anything. Yeah. You know, not for the, the comic that's up there that's really pulling their life apart mm -hmm. in front of you, trying to make it funny. Yeah. And that's what I encourage all of you guys. I mean, you're the, thank God you've listened to me. Yeah. Because I don't feel like I'm steering anybody wrong. I'm telling you, hey, this is what worked for me. Oh, yeah. And I've been studying comedy and I see where it's headed. And I think this is what you need to do on stage. Yeah. It is therapy. That's what we get out of it. It's therapeutic for someone to validate how we feel. Mm -hmm. That's why we do this. That's what drives us to get on stage. So let them validate the shit you've been through, not just some stupid shit you came up with in a truck stop or something. Yeah. You know, it's and that's what you're doing. And that's why I've been telling you from from the word go. Like was like, hey man, everyone in this room is wondering if you're a homosexual. Just because of the way you dress. You're yeah. a met you call yourself a metrosexual, but these people wouldn't know the difference between a metrosexual and a fucking subway line. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. So inform them. Yeah. And like me, I always think the trick to the audience is call out anything they could call you on before they do. Yeah. So this comes from when I was a kid. We used to have slam contests. I went, I went to school in South Carolina. got picked on a lot. In England, in middle school, we constantly was like, your mom is so fat, blah, 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 those kind of jokes, being quick. Mm -hmm. So automatically, when you see someone, you size them up, trying to find a way to make fun of them. Mm -hmm. So that's how I look at it. You should always make fun of yourself first. Give yourself permission to make fun of them. Yeah. One of the comedy rules. So I always try to do that, you know, be like, I'm wearing a cat coat, like the Goodwill bit that I have, or... I look like Alf or yeah. whatever. Anything like that where they get a quick chuckle at me and then you know me, I automatically flip it on them and start bashing the shit out of them. Yeah. I'm working on that. But <laughs> in any case, that's what I think is important is to, you know, bag on yourself a little bit. So that's one thing I really wanted to see you do because you keep doing stand-up and so many people have given you shit even, well, you're in Oregon, so behind your back. <laughs> but... <laughs> Pussies! Yeah. But in any case... You, you obviously, when I met you, I didn't know like what you were into. I'm like, is this guy really going to do stand up or what's he going to do? Because you really, you really have a drive for the business side and you're good at it. You know, I mean, you're a good businessman, in my opinion. You're really learning it, but you had the business down before you had comedy down. Yeah. But you kept 
doing getting on stage and like me well you know you're not funny all the time it's just how it goes yeah you're trying to figure it out you're like i have these jokes and they don't mean much but i know they're funny you know they're funny to the normal people they'll laugh they'll get a laugh they don't have shit to do with me yeah that's fine but eventually it's like that's not going to keep you on stage the rest of your life yeah and so eventually i was like i gotta tell ryan try to help him in my own way to be like hey if you're going to keep doing this this is really what you need to start work i think you should work on and you have and i gotta i give credit where credit's due and i think you know this because i don't do this a lot but when somebody does something well i let them know Mm -hmm. and when you told me that joke you had I uh, don't even know what you're calling it, but the one about the the towels, and, crispy and towels, the crispy towel joke, dude. I I could tell that that's at least some of it's real. Yeah. Something was real in that joke because I was like, the way it came out was so fluid. Yeah, I was like, I think he wrote this, but I also think he wrote it straight out of his head. Yeah, like you you t- finally took the gun and put it right to yourself. Turn. There's a lot of like suicide in comedy. So something I like is you ever notice how in comedy, it's either they bombed or they killed. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. America is just obsessed with violence. Yeah. You know, if you notice that. It's like, oh, he bombed or killed. They both sound horrible, but one of them means you did really well. Yeah. <laughs> so to hear that joke, I was just like, that's a Ryan joke. Like, that's officially a Ryan joke. Like, if I ever hear that again, I mean, I trust that it's yours. Yeah. I'm just saying, all right, I wouldn't, you know, we live in Bend. I'm, pre- I'm saying it's your joke because the way you said it with passion and clarity, it was just like... Wow, that's yeah. fucking funny. I mean, I I don't bullshit people when it's funny. I'm like, and you didn't you didn't perform it for me. You told me the joke. Yeah. You spoke it, and I laughed at the writing in it. I was like, that's really fucking good. <laughs> Broke it up like lumber. I love that. I'm yeah. really brilliant, man. And so I was like, you're on your way. Yeah. And I could see that. And then when I saw you on Thursday night, and you got up to perform, and I came over, I was you know no. It's always hard when you get off stage and no one, And if one person tells you you had a good set or whatever, you know you're always looking for everyone's validation. Yeah. But I came over to talk to you, and you're like, I'm actually nervous. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of let him be then. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it. Obviously, he's thinking. Yeah. You know, and he needs to think before he gets up there because he's really focused on what he's going to say and he wants to make sure it goes down right. Well, yeah. So the situation is that I've always been I've been hosting for the last year. You have, which um, was something I encouraged as well. Yes. Get into hosting. And I have done maybe five, maybe not even that, maybe like three or four 10 to 15 minute sets over the last year. Right. Uh, apart from hosting, which only gives me the first five minutes of the show. It doesn't give me time to actually get into an actual set. I just have to do a couple of jokes here and there, which is how I pretty much wrote most of my jokes when I started out. Sure. So a lot of the material that I use when hosting is the exact same material over and over again that I've always had. So when I was nervous that night, now that Dana's hosting, I have an opportunity to actually perform again. And I was nervous because I was like, I, I know that I have five quick jokes that can really kill with the audience but i i haven't done a 20 minute set in so long that i have no confidence and this is all new material that i'm trying and that is what made me nervous and i got up there and i did fairly well with my new material but it was yeah i don't know and well go back to another thing is finding my voice which I, I, can, I realize other people's voices. I noticed this very early in my comedy career because I can go back into my old material and see jokes and be like, oh, I wrote this joke because I was really listening to this comedian at the time. And I probably about two years into it, I realized that I was writing a lot of jokes for other comedians. Mm-hmm. 
and I but I was writing I was writing jokes that I really enjoyed but I was writing them in the voice of all these other comedians that have already found their voice so this material was funny they were good jokes but they weren't fitting for me right so those are the jokes in which I can go up there with no personality whatsoever get some laughs because that's how those jokes work but to do an actual set and try to you know make it personal those jokes just don't work exactly so that's why this more personal stuff that i've been getting into the whole reason that we're talking about this is just opening up those wounds and just letting it out and just sharing it with people but still using the talent that we have to make jokes out of it right using your yeah and that's what um people need to understand is when you watch someone's act that was filmed it's not just another night at the comedy club they that was stuff that they've worked at least for six months yeah up to two years yeah and i have nothing against that i would you know i think that that system really works but my issue is something that we were talking about last night is i've realized that i have this this thing where you can write me a set list i could recite it recite it recite it it doesn't matter. When I get on stage, my mind wanders. And it wanders when I'm in school. It always has wandered. I really have bad attention deficit. And it's not because yeah. of cell phones like everybody else. I had it before <laughs> technology. Thank you very much. And they had me on fucking 200, was 100, 120 milligrams of Ritalin a day, which is a lot. Jesus. You know? And that kind of shit. So I'm up there, and I don't want to be on Ritalin. I want to be me. I want to be that crazy person. So with my set, right now, there isn't a lot of structure. The whole structure is insanity. Yeah. To be like, I have no idea what... This is one thing I've been hacking away at you with is one of my main premises. And to describe my act is to say that I don't know what I'm going to say next. Yeah. I really don't know what I'm going to say next. And I know a lot of comics are probably in that position. I, I guess they are. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's been five and a half years. It hasn't changed. Yeah, and I don't like being forced into it. Who does? But being forced into a three-minute set, you know, I know that that's how you develop an hour. You start yeah. with three, then you build to five, then you build to ten. But I don't like reciting the same shit. Yeah, I'd rather be on stage telling you why I don't like reciting the same shit than I would reciting the same shit. Yeah, this is the style that I'm working on. Is this insanity? This, but and I like I said, I've gotten good feedback from people on it. Oh yeah, you know, to say Tony, the two things I like about you is that you come off the cuff. And we don't know what you're going to say next. Yeah. So when you're getting compliments on the one thing that might be wrong with your act or not normal, you got to keep pushing it. Yeah. And so that's why I said I'm just, I really wanted to kind of get this out and say, hey, you know, I'm starting to figure out who I am on stage. And when I don't do who I am on stage, I get really conflicted. Mm -hmm. But I, my one fear is that I'm going to do a bunch of, I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing on stage and be more honest about it. My only fear is that it's not going to be funny up front all the time. I can't make that guarantee. Yeah. But I can guarantee that I do know how to, once I'm comfortable, even when I fuck up, I can admit you admit that to you and you'll laugh at the fact that I admitted I fucked up. Yeah. It's funny how comedy works. But when you call yourself out to an audience, they will laugh. People laugh because of surprise. Mm -hmm. So they're surprised that you're calling yourself out. Yeah. If the last joke sucked and you say, my last joke sucked, they'll laugh because, oh, yeah, he actually admitted it. Mm -hmm. The one thing you don't want to let the, do, the audience do is formulate opinions that you yourself aren't willing to point out on stage. Yeah. That's where you start to lose them. Well, and before when I was, that the opportunities that I got over the last year to do actual sets, I started to realize that opening, my opening line 
part of the time is um, so that you aren't distracted for the entire set. Um, let me just answer the question that's on everybody's mind. No, I'm not gay. Which it's a good opener. Yeah, which is which works really well. Which is a, one of two things happens. One, it gets a laugh, or two, people are like, "Oh, okay, well that answers my question." Right. Yeah. And you could, and of course, that works. So you could keep going with that. Yeah. And I've, I have another five to ten minutes about how I'm not gay and all of this people thinking that. Yeah, I'm gay you do. And I mean, stuff. And what I've learned about it is, is you write a good joke. Yeah. And like I have jokes about goodwill, mm -hmm. for example, and they're general things that I've just pointed out that anyone would notice. Yeah. But what I'm starting to do to myself now is, okay, you have these couple jokes about goodwill, but do you have any stories about go like me? Yeah. Do I have any stories about me and goodwill? Yeah. What have I done in Goodwill that's stupid or, you know, weird, hard, stupid, or scary? Mm -hmm. You know, what have you noticed? You know, not all of it's true. Like the one about I saw that burial dress up there, and the only reason they took it down was because I bought it. Yeah. And the only reason I bought it was because, you know, my daughter's got a freaking thing coming up for her birthday, and I want her to have a nice dress. Yeah. You know, is that true? No, but, I mean, comedy, you're allowed to embellish. Yeah. That You know, but really, I want to get more into, like, hey, I was in Goodwill. I bought these two pair of pants. They were 50 bucks each. Yeah. And goodwill. I bought some person's pants. They're probably dead. They have a lot of, they have this weird stretch mark in the cock area. The, <laughs> the buttons never stay closed, so I assume he had a big penis, or he was always on Viagra. Yeah. And he got rid of him because he's either dead or his dick got so big he got bigger pants. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I bought them for $50 each. I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah. You don't do that. What the hell is wrong with me? These there, are used pants. There's a personal story. See, that's what I'm saying. So this would be the next thing. This is where I'm trying to go. Yeah. With my... So the next time I get on stage, that's where I'm going to try and go. I think that is a perfect example of the alternative comedy scene. I'm doing air quotes when I say that. You are. Because bunnies. in the... I think, I think late 90s, early aughts is when alternative comedy really started to take off. Where it was less Jerry Seinfeld, observational stuff, and more personal stories um, sharing, opening up. Because during the late 80s, early 90s, that's when stand-up comedy was the guy in the, you know, in neon the jacket with the, with the arms Set up rolled up. Line. Yes. Yes. And it was all just observational stuff that anybody could see. And people connected with it because they're like, oh, I see that every day. I never realized this hilarious thing about that before. And comedy has flipped. Yes. Now people want to hear about what you've done because we all live the same mundane lives. Yeah. If you talk about your cat, everyone has a damn cat. You're just talking about your cat yeah. instead of cats in general. Yeah. And so then I'll people can, can decide for themselves yeah. if they can relate to that or not. And if not, you're educating them. Yeah. If, you, if they can relate, then they're with you. Yeah. So it's just, it, I think what was alt comedy in the 90s has become the norm for comedy now. Exactly. Which I think is absolutely awesome. And I mean, it's, it's two effects. Uh, one, people realizing how hacky that comedy was back in the day and wanting something that somebody's actually putting their heart into. And two, being that we're out of the observational shit. We are, you said earlier, is that we have already observed all the observational stuff. The only thing that is new is our experiences. Right. So to call the alternative scene is not alternative. It's not alternative. It's just more personal We've than evolved. what it was. Comedy's yeah. evolved. Yeah. The alternative now is that kid that we, I'm not good with names of people. Um, the guy who does like the, the, the poetry thing with the clams and oh, everything. Rich. Yeah. Yeah, Rich. Yeah. Like I brought him up as alternative. I said, when I brought him up that night when I was working for you, I was yeah. covering for you, and I said, you're going to do a little bit of alt comedy for us to start the show. Yeah. He went nuts when he got off stage. Yeah. 
he was like, oh my God, that, w- that was perfect. You called it alt comedy. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I'm like, well, really what alt comedy is, is like, it's not what people are ready for. Yeah. That's all you're saying is like, this isn't typical stand-up. And is Rich gonna, if Rich continues to do stand-up, he is not, I promise you, he is not going to keep doing the clamshell thing. No. Eventually, he's going to say, why the hell do I keep putting myself through this? Yeah. Oh, because I have something to say. Yeah. Okay, well, what the hell do you... You know exactly what I'm talking about now, well, don't and you? Well, see, that is something... I have, I have talked to him about that, is that his little... He does the little... He acts out a poetry reading, and it's fucking hilarious. He gets audience involved. Yeah. He gives them little costume things and have them act it out, which is awesome. What's great about it is that every time he does it, it's exactly 10 minutes long. I don't, I don't know if he yeah, plans a booker, it that way. It's helpful, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's exactly 10 minutes long. And what's great is that it is an alt sort of comedy thing. So it's a great way to open the show. It gets people's attention, gets people involved. And it's exactly 10 minutes. But here's something that I told him is that the second you need to do a 15-minute set, you have five minutes that is not going to fly if you're going to keep doing that. Because he can either do that or do actual stand-up. You can't go from one to the other. So I have been encouraging him to um, branch out and just do stand-up or just do the poetry reading thing. So it's... I mean, he said he wrote a new poetry thing for next time he performs, which I look forward to. I'm sure it'll be hilarious. But at the same time, I encourage him to just sit and write material and just have him do regular stand-up. If he keeps doing it, he will. Oh, yeah. Um, if I don't... I, a lot of people um, remember me when I first started. I think when we all start stand-up, we do everything we can to stay away from it's actually in our head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We just want to be funny. Yeah. That's all we want to do. I did characters. Mm-hmm. I wore a mini skirt. I At one point, I was going through seven different characters in one set. Yeah. And none of it had anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. But And the worst part was when people started saying, I really like it better. And then I started switching to my own voice. I got rid of the characters. Mm-hmm. I had an epiphany on stage. Actually, it was an ass-kicking. I did a show in Portland with all these characters, and it went terribly wrong. Nobody really laughed. It was very awkward. Yeah. And at the end of it, a, couple, uh, a comedian by the name of Noriko Ott told me, he says, you know what really works is when you beat yourself up. Self-defecating uh, humor is what I call it. Yeah. Because I have a hard time pronounced deprecating. Yeah. Um, but in any case, he said, you know, when you're beating yourself up, that's what people are really going to laugh at. Yeah. And he was, he's funny. He's successful. And and I thought, okay, I started working on that. So when I came back to Bend, everyone was just like, hey, man, you know, I really like the characters that you did. And every time I heard that, it hurt my feelings. Because what they're saying to me is, this shit isn't funny. Your character shit was funnier. Yeah. So once again, I started over. Yeah. And I had to grind it out and grind it out. And it's been three years, two years at least, yeah. that I've been like, and now I'm finally at the end of that grinding out phase where I'm like, okay, damn it, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. I've noticed through doing this a lot that I tend to do this and I tend to scare people. Um, and if that happens, I'll make notice of it. I'll let you know, get you back on board, and we'll keep going. Yeah. You know? And to me, that's like saying, I know who I am on stage. Mm-hmm. This is who I am, or this is where I'm at on stage right now. And to me, that's my voice. Yeah. You know, the things that I've done that make make up who I am, but how I approach it on stage is my voice. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. And so when I see people like Rich, I'm just like, stick with it. This is the first phase yeah. of a long road. Oh, yeah. So it's okay. And as far as like, you know, like to me, I still like the idea of wearing a skirt or wearing a dress on stage just because I, I do come off aggressive. Yeah. Especially on those nights when I'm really pissed off. 
I haven't done it yet, but if I'm, especially in Philly, if I'm really pissed off and I'm going to be yelling, like just letting it go, because some nights I'm going to be able to do that and I'm going to want to do that, you bet your sweet ass I'll go pick out something pretty from Goodwill. Yeah. You know, something real pretty. And I'm not kidding. I'll do it just to be like, this guy is going off, but he is going off in something that gets me off. So yeah. <laughs> just because of it, it's like once you know your voice, I've always been that kind of character. Mm-hmm. In high school, I was the class clown, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just being goofy. So once I become comfortable with who I am on stage, it's like, dude, I'm still going to talk about goodwill, crackhead moms, you know, why the government's a pain in the ass, whatever, yeah. and how that affects me. But I am wearing a dress. So if yeah. nothing else, and you really don't like what I'm saying, I'm still wearing a dress. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just, once in a while, I'll do it just for shits and grins. It's like, I don't care. And if people are like, well, hey, man, I've seen pictures of you wearing a skirt. Like, you're damn right. I'm very comfortable with who I am. I, I was, was actually just going to say that I have a picture of you in a skirt. You do. I mean, I, <laughs> people have pictures, have handwritten, people have drawn my penis. Because I've done nude modeling up at COCC and OSU for two years. Oh, well, now. And old people. They're the, one, they're the nastiest ones. They're the ones who actually insist that you get naked. The Jeez. older you are, the more they want to see a cock, a young cock. I think that's what it is. I mean, there was men and women in that fucking thing. Yeah. And I, got, I, got, I, I never in my life have I ever gotten the grandmother check. Even my grandmother gives me ones <laughs> if it's under 10, not a check. Yeah. But these old ladies were writing me checks for 2 to $3. <laughs> After an hour of doing weird poses that I couldn't possibly hold for 10 minutes, but tried anyway. And just, you know, its own unique situation. So I am very comfortable in that sense. People have always said to me, when they can't tell me that I was funny, mm-hmm. they will say, you're very comfortable up there. Yeah. It's like, well, trust me, if you sit naked in front of all kinds of weird people while they draw you, and if you have a, a, a complex about how, dick, how big your dick is, mm-hmm. that's going to go away. Yeah, because <laughs> it ain't too damn warm in those rooms. So yeah. you know what I mean? It's just like this oh, is who I am. And trust me, no woman has ever hit on me after I've done a modeling scene. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Uh, so you talk about rejection. You yeah. know, you're just like, and there's no changing room for nude models either. Nope. There's no changing room. It's just like, oh well, you can just kind of stand over in the corner while we take five. So you got to put your underwear on. You got to get dressed in front of them too. Because yeah. I didn't buy a robe. This isn't Playboy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just like, yeah, that was fucking frustrating, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, still you walk away with a little bit of money, you know. And plus, every time I've shown my dick, I've walked away with cash. So <laughs> 75 bucks I made in one hour. Nice. So so I, I think that you touched on something kind of interesting there, is that in the nude modeling, you went up there and you're very confident. In comedy, you go up there, you're very confident. And this is, this is a theory that I've been playing around in my head. So this is the first time this is coming out loud. Uh, with Dana as I'm teaching her how to host. The reason I want her to host is to get more physically comfortable with the stage. Once she gets physically comfortable with being on stage in front of people, then she becomes mentally comfortable. Because once she no longer has to worry about whether her fly is open, she can then just go up on stage, just a knee-jerk reaction, and know how to act on stage physically and not have to worry about that. And eventually, then she just focuses on the mental stuff. Then she'll start doing material as she's opening the show, knowing that she's probably not going to get laughs because that's the host doesn't isn't supposed to. Right. But doing that transition and just getting her comfortable with the job and the occupation, then rather than you know trying to please the audience and worry about getting laughs because that's a mental thing that you have to work on. Mm-hmm. But first, you have to be physically comfortable on stage. Right. Because if you're not physically comfortable, then that's what you're thinking about. 
is the physicality of you being on stage. So once you can wipe that from your mind and don't have to worry about it anymore, then you can actually start working on your material, start finding your voice, start finding who you are. Right. And focusing on the big stuff. So it's all physical. I, every open micer, I say your first time on stage, if you go up there and you hold the microphone and we can hear you, you are successful. Done your job. Yes, you are. You are on a successful path to being a successful. And you've comedian. already beat up ninety-five percent of Americans. Exactly. Yeah. You've already become better than ninety-five percent of Americans because everyone tells you public speaking is the number yeah. one fear over yeah, death. It is. Yeah. People fear public speaking. Yeah. And once so, you might get off stage doing comedy for a few years, and someone says. You know, you might have had a shit set, but I promise you someone's going to come up to you and be like, boy, it takes a lot of balls to do what you did. Yeah. You know, and you might go, you know, go home and get pissed off, but they mean it because mm-hmm. they're not going to get on stage with you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to happen. Like me, when I'm in Prime, when I was in Prineville and having fun riffing on the audience, which I love to do, mm-hmm. you know, I love riffing, and um, those rooms are hard not to riff because every time you get into a bit that isn't relatable to them, they start chopping you up and talking. Yeah. So it's constantly riffing. It's annoying mm-hmm. in a sense because if they're not shutting your shutting their mouth, mm-hmm. then you just have to keep talking about them, or they're not going to shut up. So let me ask you. This is my final question. Okay. And I like to ask this question not only, because, well, all the other questions that I ask is to get information out to give to the people listening to this. I ask this question not only for people to hear your answer, but for you to hear your answer. There's two parts to this question. First, what is your definition of success? Now, you can say take this existentially and just be like, well, here's a general sense of what I think success is. Right. Or you can talk specifically about, for a stand-up comedian, what is success? I think success, my, my vision of success is going to bed happy with where I'm at in life. Mm-hmm. Being, 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 being able to look back and see what you've accomplished. Like every year you should take an assessment mm-hmm. and see how far you've come. And that is your measure of success. Mm-hmm. Success, the most important part of success is realizing that you are actually succeeding at something. Mm-hmm. You have to give yourself credit. That's to me a success because we all are usually succeeding unless we're drug addicts, yeah. things like that. If you're doing positive things, you're succeeding. But the most important part to success is giving yourself credit because otherwise you won't appreciate it and you mm-hmm. won't continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. So I, the, my vision of success is be going to bed happy and still being motivated to do something new, to keep moving forward. So here's my question for you, and this question is more for you than it is for the listeners. Where do you feel that you are in relation to your definition of success? I'm very successful. Yeah? Yeah. That's awesome. So why do, why do you feel that you are successful? What is it personally? Because like, every every day I'm getting a I'm getting a little bit better. I'm pushing myself to be a little bit better than the day before. Mm-hmm. I'm not digressing. I'm moving forward. Yeah. And to me that is success. Because there is no final line for me. I'm never going to be 100% complete with comedy. Mm-hmm. No any any comical a good comic will tell you that there is no finish line. You're always going to, till the day you're dead, you strive to be better than you were the day before. Yeah. To me, that is a vision of success. You keep getting better. Yeah. To me, that's being successful. Mo- going backwards is, is the opposite of success. Mm-hmm. Moving forward is success. Yeah. Doing better than you did the day before, that's it. That's a really easy example of success. Yeah. And it's not, 
that's not hard to achieve. Yeah. Like, well, yesterday I was smoking five cigarettes. Today I only smoked one. That's success. Yeah. You succeeded in smoking less cigarettes. Yeah. You know? Well, now I run instead of smoke Mm -hmm. once a week. That's success. There you go. You know? My kid and I, my kid tells me that she loves me without me having to ask just because she loves me. That is success. Yeah. From a year and a half ago where she was telling me that she hated my guts and she wanted to be with her mom. Yeah. That's fucking success. Yeah. And I earned all of that. So giving yourself credit is the most important part of success and the hardest thing for a lot of people to do. Do you? So I feel very successful these days because I can look at myself and say, yeah, I'm doing the right thing and I'm being congratulated for it because I've earned it. That's awesome. And it's it's hard because you always say, well, Jesus, he's kind of got his head up his ass. But like, no, I just need to give myself credit where credit's due. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm never going to be happy. Yeah. Because I'm never going to feel like I achieved anything, even though I have. You have to give yourself credit. Well, I know that you're successful and you only get more successful from this point on. Well, you too. I'm, I'm I mean, not to, now that to we're watch. blowing smoke up each other's ass, <laughs> but I mean, honestly, the shit that you did on stage the other night and the way you've been running this business, you're going to keep getting better and better. You won't, st- you know, as long as you don't stop, you'll be successful. Yeah. You'll continue to be successful. I, I enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, it's a simple rule. Adam Carolla says it is that does it make you money or does it make you happy? If you can get both, then you have the best, like that is success. So, I mean, right now, no, I'm not making a lot of money doing this, but I enjoy every single second of it. It makes me happy. I am making other people happy. I am giving other people opportunities. That's what makes me happy is having other people that I can do this for. And I mean, I, I, you know, I could do comedy and I can try to get gigs and stuff like that, but that wouldn't be as fulfilling as what I'm doing here with everybody else. Right. And that's that I feel is my like under your definition of success I mean I know I'm not I'm not booking huge comedians I'm I don't have a whole bunch of rooms it's not you know not every night is selling out but every day is getting better every show more people better comedians my material is getting better every day a year and a half ago we were losing money booking comedians yes We were paying out the nose for just to put on shows here. And so now what are you doing? And now I am starting to turn a profit. We're getting huge comedians that are asking us to book them and put them up and do shows here in Bend. And that is a measure of success. Yeah. That's, you've been successful. You've gone from losing money to gaining money. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Because if you died today, would people say that, well, he didn't finish his dream so he wasn't successful. Yeah. No. He was successful in bringing a comedy to Bend. Yeah. He did... This is what he was able to accomplish in his time here. Yeah. That's success. I feel there's a suborder of success. Like, you can be successful uh, where you look at, you know, like big CEOs and businessmen that have all the money and business in the world. They are successful. Yes. But under your definition, which I also feel, is that if you are consistently on the path to being successful, then that is a form of success in itself. Right. And that is legit. Well, it's like Donald Trump said, you know, only when you have passion for something can you become wealthy, if you will. Yeah. You know, really only because you do something because you love it will you ever become wealthy. Not to say, I mean, wealthy is different for everybody, but I mean, the general thing is is that you have to follow what you what you give a shit about yeah. to ever get to make money in something. Yeah. Like, I'd rather make $50,000 a year doing stand-up, having my family together and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
to me, that's that's my one of my main goals right now is yeah. to get to that point, making fifty thousand dollars a year after taxes, yeah, and having a place to live and not having to work for somebody else, yeah. And that does everybody a favor, yeah. You know, that's that's one of my goals. After that goal, we go on to the next. We invent a new goal. Yeah. But was I successful in getting there? You're damn right. Was yeah. I successful in getting custody of my kid and still pulling stand up off? Yeah, absolutely. But if I don't give myself credit for that, then I'm just a miser- miserable fuck, and I've been there for a long time. Yeah. So if I've learned anything, it's like, while I watch people around me fall to the wayside, I'm still standing. Yeah. And now I got a kid in my arms, and I'm st- and a mic in the other hand, mm-hmm. and I'm still standing, you know? So that's, yeah, and a lot of us are successful because we're moving forward. Yeah. If you quit whatever you're passionate about, that's when you stop becoming successful. Yeah. There's no point in quitting. Very deep. It's true, though. I mean, it is fucking deep, but seriously, so many people... Um, like pro skateboarders, boxers, fighters, athletes. They especially athletes because they usually are done in their thirties. Yeah. You know, I mean they beat themselves up, they quit or whatever. Those people are the most miserable people you ever meet. And a lot of drug addicts, that's their story. Yeah. Either their dad molested them or whatever the hell it was, or they were, you know, they were they were a wrestler in high school and things went sideways and they quit and they haven't had passion for anything since yeah and a lot of people spend the rest of their life and that is not success mm-hmm. that's a living hell well under the donald trump quote under a very related quote from a similar guy i believe it was the joker that said if you're good at something don't do it for free right <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i just want to compare those two people real quickly um, but yeah if you're passionate yeah if you're passionate about something you become good at it just naturally and with comedy, especially, if you are good at it, don't do it for free. But in order to become good at it, you do have to make sacrifices and sometimes do it for free. Oh, yeah. But if as long as you are on that path to being successful and you're working hard, then you will become good at it and you will get paid and you can make that kind of money. Yeah. Hard, hard work is what gets you there. Yeah. Over talent. Yeah. Hard work will get you there. Yeah. Guaranteed, no matter what the hell you're doing. Yeah. And that's all it is. Just stay dedicated to your craft. This this comedy thing, like writing and everything, if you I don't know how you can do it as long as I have and not let it become an addiction. Yeah. This is the five year mark is shit or get off the pot time. Mm-hmm. A lot of people quit around here. Yeah. And I know a lot of people make it to ten and fifteen years too, and they're like, Oh, well, I didn't get a TV show. Tony G has no such aspirations. Yeah. I don't care. I yeah. mean, whatever comes my way, I'll pay attention to. But all I want to do is just keep getting better at stand-up because I do. I am a single dad, and I still have to put food on the table. And I also love to write, and that's where I'm, I'm following that as well. Mm-hmm. As a comedian these days, something I want to add to the end of this podcast is keep in mind comedy is one thing, but if you're good at comedy, you may also be good at acting or writing, directing, promoting shows. Don't just put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Definitely add things. Louis C.K. didn't get where he was because just because he did stand-up. People don't know. He was also writing short stories, writing small plays and things like that his whole ride. Yeah. And that's why he got where he was going because he was doing a lot of shit. Yeah. And a lot of these comics actually go to acting class during the day. Yeah. And so when it happens, they're ready to act. Yeah. And if that's where you want to go, you should. I've decided I really want to write. I don't want to be a... I don't want to write movies per se... I want to write my stories, my books, mm-hmm. like a Hunter Thompson kind of thing. That's where I want to go yeah. as my other career. Yeah. The whole point for any comedian is to get the hell away from a day job. That is success in comedy. Anyone yeah. will tell you that now. There's not millions to be made. There's a lot more comedians than there are comedy clubs. Mm-hmm. But 
they're you know if you can make fifty grand a year and stay away from a day job, you're successful. Yeah, that's all there is to it. Yeah, and so find out what other things you can do you're passionate about that can help keep you away from a day job. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, there are so many comedians now that do that write for TV shows that have podcasts and do all this other stuff, and it, there's two great things that happen when you do this is you can do stand up and that can be your main goal yes but you should branch out to these other mediums of writing and entertainment not only because it builds your own talent base which makes you a stronger comedian but also it will give you more opportunities in those other mediums right if you only do stand up then you don't have opportunities to be in a comedic film as an actor or host a podcast or do a radio show. You have show. to have the abilities. You yeah. have to work on them so that... That's something I heard on a podcast. I don't remember which one, so I can't give them credit, <laughs> unfortunately. But um, I think it was Mosh- Kasher, mm-hmm. uh, his wild-ass name. Good for him if he could pronounce it. But um, <laughs> in any case, um, was basically that when you go to... a Comedy clubs, comedy scenes, mm-hmm. if it's a good one. Um, it's not about you getting what you want. It's about when you meet somebody, it's about making friends with people in the comedy scene. It's not about burning bridges. It's about making friends with people in the comedy scene. And those people that come to these comedy clubs that might not be comedians, but they might be agents or they might be writers or whatever they might be, are there because they want to help people who are looking for help. Mm-hmm. They, But you have to establish some sort of relationship with them first. Yeah. So being cool with people is helpful in the yeah. scene. So if you go out to do a set and you can afford to stay around after your set, which mm-hmm. I usually can't, unfortunately, yeah. but if you can, do so. Oh, yeah. And eventually you'll meet people, but when you meet them, they're not going to say, I'm going to put you in a movie. Yeah. They're not going to tell you that. Yeah. They're going to say, what do you need help working on? Mm-hmm. What, how can I help you? Then you both benefit financially if you get there, of course, but really it's just about one comedian meeting up with a couple other comedians and saying, well, let's write a script together and see if it goes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many projects Carlin or those guys worked on before they were dead, but a lot of them never made it to fruition. Yeah. But, you know, of all the hundreds of projects they work on, a couple of them did. I think a really good example is Jim Carrey. Because he started out just doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. But he's not famous for stand-up. He, At all. He's famous for sketch uh, and living color. That's where people realize that he was funny. They don't realize what the hell he characters. went through to get there either. Yeah. And then from there, becoming a you know film actor. He doesn't do, like, I'm sure he would still do stand-up now if he was asked to. Mm-hmm. But he started just doing stand-up. But then he was like, well, maybe I should try this acting thing. Started doing improv, sketch writing, stuff like that. Right. And because of that, that's where he found his success. Right. Because he branched out from stand-up comedy. And, you know, he may not, he might still be a no-name as a stand-up. Yeah. You know, yeah, if he was really still doing stand-up, maybe, and of course, if he started in like the early 80s, just now he would be making it as a stand-up. Right. But people would be looking at it as like, well, he's fairly eccentric, kind of weird, sort of an Andy Kaufman sort of a thing, if you've seen some of his uh-huh. old stuff. Right. Which is obscure, and you know, it has its little niche. But at the same time, I don't think it would have made him a huge, successful stand-up comedian. Right, and if that's what you're going for. Yeah. And see, me, what I really want... I want to be able to walk into a grocery store and nobody bother me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. But at the same time, my ultimate dream is that w- at least one day I'm standing backstage and they start chanting Tony G. Yeah. That's just been my fantasy for day one. What's your goal? That's my goal. That the people in that room are so damn excited that I'm get- getting ready to get on stage that they're chanting my fucking name. Yeah. 
whatever it takes to get there, that's just what I want. It's one of my small dreams. It's how I know that I've achieved what I wanted. Yeah. Is that those people are really want to be there for me. So I yeah. found my audience. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. And the other thing is is that I really love to write. So I want to publish. I want to I want to do that constantly. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm digging into when I move. I'm looking into writing jobs. How can I get into the writing field? What's it going to take? What schools do I need to attend? Whatever the hell it's going to take, that's yeah. where I'm headed. Between stand-up and writing, that's how I'm going to make my living. We're also getting into podcasting, right? I am getting into podcasting. I think it'll be something that I use probably maybe once a week yeah. to have like a weekly rant. But after seeing you do a podcast and the way that you interview, yeah, that's really cool. But I think I might more so want to write than do a podcast. Like yeah. Podcasting school is probably something that I'll have. It's nothing wrong with having a weekly podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, just a way for you to talk about Back, backstage shit is yeah. really what podcasting is. Yeah. It's giving the comedian a chance to be a human being. Yeah. Instead of just a damn comedian. Yeah. I, I would, this episode hopefully will be a segue into your podcast. Which right. Is so, G Why Not with Tony G. Right. Exactly. And also, until then, I and if you hear this and you are encouraged, um, I do have Tony G Comedian at Gmail. Just hit me up. I'm that approachable. And if you really have something that pisses you off, I'm serious. This is what I'm all about. This is going to be the medium that I push. If you're upset about something legitimate, don't send me any of this race crap. I don't want any of that. Mm-hmm. If you're open-minded and you're with me, send me what you're mad about. If you want to complain about me, send that too, because, buddy, I'm good at tearing stuff up. But uh, Tony G Comedian at Gmail or Tony G Comedian at Facebook. Right. Either way, just hit me up. Let me know that I, that you exist and that you appreciate what you heard. That motivates me. And then I can keep you in mind the next time I get on stage. Yeah. I look forward to being a guest on your podcast sometime, if you'll have It's going to, of course, I'll have you. (laughs) Well, you've definitely been, you've really been listening to the shit that I've given you as advice and other people, and that in itself is, means you're serious. So you'll be someone worth interviewing. Yeah. For sure. There's there's a wide variety of experience in our community, and Mm -hmm. to not utilize that is just ridiculous. Right. I feel that we are using it and doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You are doing a good job. Well, both of us are. That's why this podcast went really good, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, Tony, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and we'll uh, listen to you at GY Not podcast. <laughs> right. I'd like to thank everybody who heard this for um, sticking with it. I don't know how long it's going to end up being, but it was fun. Yeah. And thank you, Ryan. You're very and welcome. And the Comedy Northwest podcast is kick ass. Woo! <laughs> All right.